Greetings. I'm uh, adjusting to life with a new baby in the house, so I planned a few podcasts ahead of time uh, so I wouldn't you know, take too long a gap between posting new material. And uh, this is one of those podcasts. <laughs> this is actually a conversation I had on the Failed Kingdom show with an author named Matthew Corpman. Uh, it's K-O-R-P-M-A-N. The host of Failed Kingdoms, uh, Ari Spivey, he's guested on Cantus Firmus a few times, he'd invited me on to discuss Corpman's book, Saying No to God, a radical approach to reading the Bible faithfully. Now, I've recorded this very introduction you're listening to um, two different times before this, and I was inclined to record a third after messaging Matthew directly to get his thoughts on what I had planned to say. And here's why I wanted to be careful with my words. As you'll soon hear, this conversation was not as friendly as either of us had hoped it would be. While I think we would both dispute the exact reasons for that, it essentially came down to this. We had different thoughts going in about what this conversation was going to be like. We had said ahead of time that we weren't going to be doing a debate, but that we would be focusing on the case Matthew made in his book. Now, in my mind, that meant that while we wouldn't be having like a formal debate with, you know, set times and, you know, you know, <laughs> sections and stuff like that, it would be fine for me to push back on his view to encourage him to explain and defend it. So that was my thought process going in. But in Matthew's mind, um, we're not having a debate. We'd be focusing on the case he made in the book meant a kind of a more friendly softball, I guess, discussion. Um, and when I didn't serve up the softballs, um, but began, you know, pushing back on his arguments instead, he became frustrated, uh, visibly frustrated, and things went downhill from there. So you can tell that he's frustrated from the audio, but, but as I mentioned, you can really tell by watching Matthew's body language. And if you want to know what I mean, you can look up the Failed Kingdoms cast on YouTube, and it gets gives you kind of a sense of the tension <laughs> that's going on there. Now, I had originally considered sensationalizing this conversation to play up the conflict, to kind of pull in listeners like, oh, check out what happened here. This just went crazy. Um, but that motive didn't really sit right with, with me. Um, and so my hope in redoing this introduction was to remove those elements which I deemed to be less than Christian and unproductive considering the circumstances. Uh, and so I did it once and then I felt like it maybe still was not right and so I did it again and then had Matthew look at it and so here, here we are. So instead of kind of playing up the sensational elements, what I actually want to do instead is make it clear that Matthew and I have talked things through, um, you know, very recently now, and there are no hard feelings. We both regret that the conversation went sour, and if we have a chance to do something like this again, we'll be sure that we're both on the same page and that it goes much more smoothly than this one did. Um, I don't want to compromise our familial relationship as brothers in Christ to get more downloads. That's essentially where I'm at on this. In any case, this conversation was a fascinating one. And while I broadly disagreed with the thesis of the book, it was exciting to work through Matthew's arguments and read the text of Scripture more closely to check his claims. If you're as intrigued by his arguments as I was, you can get his book, Saying No to God, on Amazon. Uh, and once again, that's Matthew Korpman, K-O-R-P-M-A-N. I hope you enjoy the conversation and that these comments from me will have brought things to a proper close and redeemed what went wrong in this conversation. Uh, good evening, guys. We're live now, guys. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ari Spivey, and I I currently run the uh, podcast called Fell Kingdoms. 
I also make music under the same name. So make sure you subscribe to the channel. You also like our Felt Kingdoms podcast on uh, SoundCloud. It's also under Felt Kingdoms. Um, today is September 18th, 2020. The year the world ended, it seems. At least it seems to me. But we don't have time for that. We have a very, very, very exciting show for you today. It's not a debate. Let me just say that right now. It's not a debate. It's more. It's more so of a discussion. We are all friendlies here. We we are all brothers. We are all brothers in Christ. We don't. You know. We don't want to like bite each other's heads off. So, uh, without further ado, we are a podcast that in that is in love with hip hop, in love with Jesus, and we love to think. And speaking of thinking, this show is really going to make you think. And I'm so honored to have two men that I think are extremely intelligent and extremely uh well to do with theology and thinking and philosophy so guys i have this guy his name is cody cook say hello cody hey what's up i, I want to echo that it is not a debate unless it's not a debate really unless of course i do really well in which case of course which it's of course it's a debate if i do really well but otherwise <laughs> it's not a debate yeah no. so <laughs> cody cody is the Founder and blogger at uh, CantusFirmus.com. He is also an author. He's written a couple books, which is really cool. So I have friends who have written books and that are authors. I, you know, that is a lot. That's a lot for me. Then we also have Matthew Corpman. How you doing, sir? Oh man, wait, 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 wait. I oh, can't... you you muted yourself, bro. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> oh, there, there you go. There you are. Yeah, Matthew Cortman, how you doing? doing? Really well. Thank you so much for having me on the show. No problem, no problem. So I'm going to switch to all all three of us on. So for today, you wrote a book called "Saying No to God," and um, Cody was nice enough to basically. Did you read the whole thing, Cody? Uh, so there were a few there were a few chapters he told me that were kind of extracurricular. So mm -hmm. when I was I was trying to kind of rush through, so I skipped those. Just kind of look through them really quickly yeah but i uh i, I read all the chapters that he said were uh, got the point across so i'm i'm pretty familiar with it but i of course want to ask some questions and make sure i understand it well yeah so th this is the thing i couldn't read i couldn't get through the whole thing because i was too busy setting all of this up like it literally took me over a week to set all of this up i camera lights i had to literally plan out every single thing so it and you know my wife is my wife is pregnant, so you know it's been a lot. It's been a lot this week, but I'm good. I'm good. So, Matt, can you first um, give us a brief synopsis on what the book is about and why you it, like what inspired you to actually write the book? Sure. Yeah. No, I imagine that somebody who hears the title already might be coming up with ideas of trying to summarize what is this about? Where is it coming from? Mm -hmm. Saying no to God. Is this another new atheist work? Is this coming from uh, the school of Dawkins or something like that? And the subtitle of the book is A Radical Approach to Reading the Bible Faithfully. So that creates the paradox for the title, that it's not new atheist, and it's not your traditional Christian approach to talking about the Bible. It's going to be something different. And that's exactly what I wanted to do when I set out to really uh, write the book and slash uh, figure out just what in the world was really going on inside those sacred texts of mine. And part of that uh, interest in wanting to write a book like that 
like this was to really dig deep into scripture. Uh, one of the things that I knew well in my undergraduate studies is that there were a few stories in the Bible where people said no to God and it was a good thing. Yeah. And there were no resources that I could find, or maybe a few articles here and there that would touch on it, but very few resources that would actually want to dig deep into why could that be possible, what was happening there, and what would the implications of that be for Christian life. And I really thought it mattered, especially in our sort of postmodern era in which truth and questions of authority are foremost on so many people's minds, these kinds of stories where people face off against the ultimate authority and win, I thought they would probably have some sort of value for Christians today with the questions they're struggling with. And certainly I knew that those were questions I wanted to explore, and that's one of the reasons why I spent the time that I did trying to investigate them. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily the book is like a final answer on everything. Mm -hmm. It's more of starting a journey and inviting people to come along for the ride. Mm -hmm. So, Cody, um, what what was the first chapter that you actually that you actually read when you dove into the book? Well, I started you know from the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, I think there were just a few um, kind of example chapters mm -hmm. where uh, Matt was talking about kind of uh, applying his uh, hermeneutic or his way of approaching scripture to a few specific issues. Um, and those were the ones I, I only kind of skimmed, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I thought it was I thought it was a really interesting book. I I, I think I um, struggled at first to uh, discern what the the thesis was, and then I, as I kind of read it, I started to become a little more clear. Um, and if if I could, I, I want to make sure there's a few um, quotations I pulled out that I thought sort of served as sort of summary statements, and I want to see if if I'm right about that, if that's all right. Absolutely. Okay. So the first quotation was, God wants us sometimes to say no to him. This is not something to avoid. In fact, this is exactly what God invites us to do in the Bible. Uh, the second is, God would rather have faithful and honest disobedience than simple blind obedience from his followers. And then the third is, God wants us to copy him by copying his character of love, and in so doing, it requires us to reject the same sorts of things that God himself rejects, even when they come from God. And if I could try to summarize... Uh, I think what your, your essential thesis is that God sometimes says things that he knows to be wrong to provoke a reaction from us and that he wants us to rise up to his his true nature and not necessarily his words or you know verbal guidance is that is that a fair representation yeah no I definitely think that you caught on to the thesis that there is a distinction between God's inherent character and God's temporal words in the moment in Scripture, in certain certain chapters, in which the character, be it Moses, Abraham, or otherwise, has to distinguish their knowledge of who God has been with who God seems to be pre presenting himself as in the moment. And not, in a certain sense, the test is, do you know God well enough to know who he has been and to remain faithful to the God you know, as opposed to falling for the divergence and suddenly revealing that you didn't ever know the God that you were following from the beginning. Okay. Well, um, if I could, I, I, would, I was trying to think of, if I were to make a positive statement about kind of what I was coming in with, um, I, I came up with one that, that maybe, um, maybe it will kind of set the tone for where we're moving. And so we kind of know where we both are on this. Um, so I guess my thesis statement would be, and this is taking into consideration everything that you've written and, um, and, and you know, 
taking the insights and then also maybe pushing back on the things that I disagree with. And so um, my thesis would be that God wants us to take our struggles to him with honesty. honesty. He also leaves leaves open for us to participate in his plans and purposes through intercessory prayer and right action. So that's kind of where where I guess where I'd come in on it. And I know that some of the things I say there are not necessarily... um, I'm not necessarily using the language that you use, right? I guess I'm trying to sort of say, well, I think... I'm kind of trying to follow what I think is the logic of where you're starting and where it might be going. Um, that that uh, so in particular that idea of participation as opposed to us- usurpation um, is yeah. you know, I don't yeah you would use I don't think you would use the no I, I agree I, I love yeah. the thing that you wrote okay. that 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 I, so what I'm curious of was that like is that an example of what you were coming into the book with like that's that was your idea already or was that informed by what I already wrote. So, so I think that's, that's essentially how I thought about it, but your book um, was able to stimulate, I guess, me to sort of formulate a statement. So, and, and I think, you know, a lot of times that's how, uh, that's how these things work in, in the church is that um, somebody says something that people, somebody else disagrees with, and then they sort of have to now explicitly state what they believe when they sort of just believed it implicitly before. Do you, so, do you think that what you wrote is in disagreement with what I wrote? I do in a sense, yeah. So um, I'm surprised by that. Well, I guess I it, so I'd argue there's no disagreement between what you yeah. said and what my book's thesis is. That's kind of why I said that you might disagree with the language, but I think um, that the logical. Um, uh, well, we probably want to get into some of the examples and then how you kind of work through them. I'm not, sorry, I'm not trying to take over hosting for Ari, but it would probably <laughs> be helpful if, if we um, maybe laid out some of these examples to see where this goes. Yeah, no, but I mean, I can just agree with you with, with okay. the statement that you said. I I definitely don't think that human autonomous morality if mm-hmm. you want to imagine there is even such a thing that that is what is in fact um, overstepping or usurping or whatever word you want to do uh, mm-hmm. against God um, in the words of John Calvin the victory against God in scripture is only achieved because it's God who's actually the one fighting so that your victory over God is in fact God's victory over you so the idea here that I'm presenting is, is not in any way actually uh, autonomous human versus all-powerful God. He wins. There's, as the book reveals over time, a twist where, in fact, the whole reason of you um, participating, to use your language, participating in God's pedagogical, uh, how would you say, pedagogical act of, of faith building is essentially just in order to provoke um, a decisive momentary decision on the part of the faithful to acknowledge who it is they serve. You know, um, do they, is, is Yahweh just a generic name for God? Or is Yahweh the specific God who you follow and choose to follow? Are there specific attributes of who Yahweh is as opposed to Baal or Marduk or others? And how does that inform then your choice to obey? So in that sense, then I totally agree with your statement. Um, Definitely, I don't want, no one should come away from the book assuming that in any sense, human beings have on their own right managed to rise higher than God. Rather, scripture holds a much richer, I'd argue, theme of human beings more in sync with God, just unique circumstances in which to demonstrate it. Yeah, so... Well, like I said, we, we probably want to get into some examples, but I think sure. one key one that you used is in, in Exodus 34, where um, God is is angry with the Israelites because they have, um, uh, you know, made the uh, made the golden calf, and he suggests to Moses, you know, what if I just wipe them out and we just start over with you? <laughs> 
And I think you, you presented that as um, that what God was saying was not only not what he intended to do, but it actually would have been wrong for him to do that. God was, uh, in a sense, misleading Moses with his words or testing Moses with his words. Um, and you so, could also reverse that as well. You could reverse the question and say, what would it have meant for Moses if he had accepted those words? Sure. Yeah. And I think that I'd be interested in your thoughts there, because it seems to me that there wasn't anything wrong with Yahweh's suggestion. And that if he had, if Moses had said yes, um, and God had anticipated that Moses would had said, he would say yes, and that was what God's plan was to do, that that would have been fine. Um, and I guess what I'm curious about is how does, so when we have examples like this in scripture where we know the outcome and we can sort of, it's kind of like watching a movie, right? You say, well, what was this movie about? Well, if you watch at a certain point in the film, it might give you one impression, but if you watch the whole film, that has a context. And I think a lot of the examples you give of pushing back with God, pushing back against God, provide a context where that pushing back makes sense and you sort of get the grand sweep. Um, whereas, I, whereas I think applying that to scripture generally, that you know, anytime we find a scripture that seems to push against um, a fairly um, a benign uh, picture of God, um, that we should, put, you know, well, sorry, anything we read in scripture that, that doesn't have a benign presentation of God, we should um, push back against or question. But if it, if it does have a benign presentation of God, then we should hold to that. So then I guess that sort of becomes the hermeneutic. Um, I, w- I definitely wouldn't use the word benign. I, I, I wouldn't <laughs> really want a God that was benign. Uh, sure. I don't think anyone really wants a God who's benign. That sounds more like a deist uh, deity who just sort of sits up in the sky and watches us and and is totally benign, has no interaction. I don't think you can. I don't think. I don't think you can uh, or should necessarily uh, describe either Jesus or Yahweh as as a benign deity. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. There was another word I was trying to come up with, and that was the first one that I could I could reach for. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. I didn't know so, if it was well, more well, intentional. Yeah. So so um, so in particular, you, you said at one point, um, you kind of gave this list of examples where you thought people were uh, pushing back against God, uh, saying no to God. Yeah. And you said uh, those examples were included um, xenophobia, pride, fear, arrogance, uh, hatred of others, or unmerciful justice, vengeance, uh, for example. Uh, so th- those those are the kind of the list of, uh, the examples that you gave. Um, and you said you know if, if God if someone's pushing it back against God when he appears to be xenophobic or or uh, you know arrogant or hateful then that's fine. But if they're pushing but um, um, but if they're pushing back against God and his mercy, then that's a different thing. That, that That's where you go off course. And so then I think the, the hermeneutic would not necessarily be, what does God tell me? Uh, but but what's which reading of God is the, uh, makes him seem uh, the most uh, amicable? I, I don't know. Maybe that's okay. what I'm looking how, for. How about I, I expound yeah. on the story Please. in Exodus 32 and, and tie it in? Because in some sense, like... You're referencing the final chapter, second yes. final chapter that I do, and I'm not making any broader claim than just all I do in that chapter is I just take all the different stories reviewed in the book, and I just outline the ones where people said no to God and they lost, and I outline the ones where they say yes, uh, no to God and they win, and all I do is point out that there's a trajectory or standard cohesive um, sort of harmony between what all these different ideas end up coalescing with in each of these two cases. So in that sense, then what ends up happening is you're able to say, oh, int- isn't it interesting? All the things that they said no to against God are in fact the things that most people today wouldn't ever imagine God would in fact be doing. 
I mean, unless you have a really weird imagination of God, but the majority of Christians, even evangelicals, would be like, oh yeah, this is totally who, the God I worship, this is Jesus. Whereas the things that people said no to God and lost are all things that people couldn't possibly usually imagine are the things that would represent Jesus or represent God. And so the point is simply to note that in Scripture there is a consistent portrayal of who God is, so much so that even when we see the stories of people fighting God on either end of the spectrum for the right and the wrong reasons, their reasons in both cases match up pretty well to our own uh, largely shared Christian notions of what it means to be Christ-like and what kind of a Christ-like God it is that Jesus represented for his father. So, but to dial it back, you know, if we look at the story of Exodus 32 and Moses on Mount Sinai, and you know, you, you mentioned it, God uh, goes ahead and tells Moses the Israelites have just gone ahead, they've taken and created a golden calf, an idol, and God says, I'm going to wipe them all out, I'm going to kill every last one of them, mother, woman, infant, child, all, everyone down there is gonna die. Um, and he tells Moses, get away from me. He orders him, stand back, leave me alone. I don't want you to interfere. I am going in, and this is my will, this is my purpose. Now, we have to just acknowledge, because it's very fine and all to deconstruct the arguments I'm giving in their, in their final big argument, but you do have to just acknowledge that when you start the story out in the beginning, this flies in the face of everything that uh, typically goes as classical evangelical logic or just Christian logic of how authority with God works. Um, if God tells you something, the theory goes you just do it. You know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That's usually the rhetoric. And so to have one of the key, pivotal, most faithful individuals here, Moses, who is receiving the law, Right? He is gaining his notoriety and status currently as the law, the lawgiver, the one who receives the law on Sinai. For him to turn to God and say, no, to say, I'm not respecting your desire for me to stand back. Uh, you cannot do this act that you're about to do, is fundamentally, just from the start, in flying in the face of what our expectations are. And the fact that God uh, is telling him even specifically, don't do this, get away from me, stand back. Like This is not just simply, he suggests something, and Moses is like, hey, I don't think this is, right? And then the rhetoric that Moses uses, by the way, for those listening and want to open their Bibles, it's verses, it's 32 verses 7 to 14. And, um, and so one of the strange things here is that Moses hypes up the rhetoric. He doesn't just say you can't do this. He gives really specific reasons. One, he says, this will be seen as evil by all the different nations. This will, this will be talked of as, as, as evil, that you planned to do evil from the start. So you can't do this. Matt, because uh, excuse me. What was, the, uh, what was the, um, the scripture again? It's Exodus 32, verses 7 to 14. Okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So, yeah. No, no problem. So, you know, you can't do this, he says, because it's all going to be seen as evil. This is absolutely terrible. Two, you made promises both to the patriarchs, but you also made promises through me to the Hebrew people. And this is important, too, because we have to remember God did not make a, a covenant with the Hebrew people here in Israel. Well, what I'm trying to say here, let's, let's back up. The people in Israel, according to Exodus, don't actually know Yahweh anymore. 
in the story it mentions that they cried out to something and God heard them and then later we find out from uh, the people themselves that one they don't know who God is Moses is like who am I supposed to tell them sent me they don't know what what God you are they don't know who you are the knowledge of Yahweh is largely Exodus implies lost in their period of slavery so that by the time that God comes back to them this is largely in their minds a new deity much like Abraham faces in the beginning and certainly for Moses individually he is interested in learning about this deity through his interactions during this Exodus experience and so when we look at that and we understand that it helps us to recognize here that Yahweh has entered himself yes Yahweh has gone ahead and uh, put himself into this story because of the patriarchs and because of his covenant with Abraham. But for the people's experience, this is a God who is acting first and foremost. He's responding to their cries, even if they didn't direct them to him specifically. And so they're learning about Yahweh as well. But it's not as if, right, they entered into a relationship with Yahweh and they're like expecting, oh yeah, we know everything, we understand his justices and laws. There's like a little bit more wiggle room here to a certain degree in terms of that they were promised through Moses, this one really cares about you, right? But then like faced with Yahweh saying, I'm going to kill you for the first mistake you ever made, even the children, even the infants, versus Pharaoh who's going to feed them and keep them alive and go, right? That, it, the most... Uh, it does, the most base moral vision would be able to acknowledge that the Israel, the Egyptian pharaoh comes out looking more moral and just in this scenario than God does, at least certainly from any human panorama. And so in that respect, Moses is like, no, you can't do it because you made promises to them. You made promises, period. So if you do this thing, you'll be breaking your promises. You will be a promise breaker. And this is important because what this sets up is a scenario in which truly uh, what happens if Moses accepts what's happening? What happens if Moses says, sure, um, you can do this thing? Well, since this is what Moses believes, Moses then has to accept the thing he's rejecting. So Moses will have to say, yes, God is a God who breaks his promises. God is someone who does ra'ah and evil against people who shouldn't have, right? In his acceptance of what God speaks to him, he will, in fact, be accepting blasphemy. This is part of the trick in the story. If Moses allows himself this, and on top of that, the fact that God tempts him with, well, I'll restart everything with you. You'll get a whole new privilege. You'll become the new Abraham. You'll become the one with all the privilege and status. You'll get to have your own children rather than work with other people, right? This in itself also frames it so that if Moses accepts there's a hint of impropriety that Moses, in fact, is trying to do something on his own benefit for his own skin. So there's several elements here that negate any possibility of Moses saying, yes, God, thy will be done. And part of this is also due to the fact that Moses doesn't think this is God's will, which means that for him to believe that God was one way and now God is this way also means that he violates the, the, the mention in Malachi, the, the well-known affirmation, God does not change. I do not change my ways. So this is really important because then if Moses accepts this divergence, because up until this time, as you spoke about context, Moses has been on a journey with Yahweh in one pretty much capacity. Yahweh has been consistent with him. Now he sees what he would call a divergence. Going good, 
something changes. And what he's speaking out against, if he was to accept it, he would be accepting God changes, again, falling into blasphemy because he starts to envision God in a way different than who God has been, and he accepts these things that he's internalized as just a sort of resignation. Now, with that said, the narrative goes further by the fact that the narrator accepts Moses' description, and instead of Moses simply saying that all of the other nations will see this as, as evil, and instead of just simply going ahead and saying that um, because they'll see it as evil, that this in some sense uh, is bad business for you, the narrator of Exodus actually goes ahead and describes what God does as evil when it says, and Yahweh changed his mind about the evil that he had decided to do against the Israelite people. So this is really important because now we have the narrator affirming what Moses said in the mouths of the other nations as actually accurate in its description about Yahweh. And furthermore, that Yahweh simply acquiesces, agrees with Moses. So now this creates the dilemma of verses 7 through 14, because we have a situation in which how in the world does Moses actually manage to get God to go his way? And then how is it that, you know, Moses couldn't possibly have accepted what he said? And then there's another factor in this as well, which is that Moses is the is the penultimate prophet, the individual who represents what prophecy is all about. Um, he's the great prophet, the one who, you know, the Deuteronomy will say there'll be another great prophet eventually. So this is important because one of the key categories of being a prophet is that you are one who stands in the gap. You are someone who puts yourself against God between the people and him. You are the one who stands there to make the wave stop hitting them. And that is a penultimate designation of a prophet, so much so that Ezekiel says that the prophets were false in Jerusalem precisely because they did not do that. They lied and said, peace, peace, knowing that they weren't doing anything to prevent what was coming. So they had, in fact, misled the people to their own harm, that they were, in fact, failing their job as a prophet because they were not doing this most important act. So when you have God say, get behind me, Moses, don't prevent this. Get away. God is, in fact, testing there as well, Abraham, in respect to his new prophetic job. If he does agree with this, he fails what it means to be a prophet going forward in terms of this important task. If he steps in, he creates this very important outline that all other prophets take their cues from. So this is the paradox, right? And that's only just verses 7 through 14. I'll wait, because I'm sure there's questions, I'll wait because, of course, the story keeps going in chapter 33 and 34, and, of course, my book makes a large, important argument as to what God is doing here and how that applies to hermeneutics by looking at how the story progresses, because, of course, even though God says, sure, I won't kill them all, then um, Moses and God start to get into sort of a husband and wife squabble about whose people are these. Moses is like, your people. God's like, no, these are your people. And they just keep going back and forth like that until eventually they lead to the revelation of God's law and character, which is a pivotal moment in chapter 34. So I'm sure you have maybe questions or, or things you'd like to, oh, to well, I, push I or ask about. Yeah, I have questions, but Ari hasn't been able to talk too much yet, and it's his show, so I, I want to give him a little bit of space if he wants to. Yeah, no, you to both of you. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. you, Cody. <laughs> you're good, Cody. Yeah, go ahead. Well, okay, so um, 
I've got a few thoughts. So um, that thing I'd said earlier about my thesis statement about intercessory prayer, I don't think I'm representing a view that's that's not a common evangelical view, because people pray because they hope that by their participation, that basically you know, God is inviting us to participate with him to direct um, his plans and purposes. Um, now, so that, that's my that's one point. I don't think that's a, that's an extraordinary point that people disagree with generally. On, on do the, you on the, do you levels. actually think that your prayers are influencing? You you think yeah. that your prayer makes the difference as to whether or not God ends up doing something for somebody else? Yeah, I or think you can. Think, yeah, I think so. You can. think God's in, okay? That's not a common evangelical view. That well, is I, not. Yeah, well, is, I, the idea I, I, is usually what Jesus says in regards to. Uh, you know, the Father knows what you're going to pray for and what you need even before you ever ask Him. Sure. Uh, well, there, there, that's there's, the traditional view yeah. that's usually echoed by evangelicals and, and other Christians. Sure. To say that God actually needs to be influenced by prayer is a view that some early Christians have had, some early church fathers had it. I think they were a little crazy in that regard. Um, they thought, like, wow, they would write about Moses and say, isn't Moses amazing? He could calm God's wrath down. Isn't that fantastic? How well, how he could calm him down? Uh, what 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 human abilities to do that? And it's just, I find that a strange. Personally, I find that a strange argument. So you know, for me, I don't think that prayer influences God to do something God wouldn't already do. But I do like the language of participation yeah. in the fact that we're brought into the life of God and into what He's doing. I just don't think that if I don't pray, oh my goodness, you know. I'm going to find out someday, like, oh, that woman would have lived if, if sure. only you had participated with, you know, I, I think that uh -huh. makes God well, into a very strange image. Well, I, I, I disagree. So one, one thing I noticed that you don't seem to reflect in your view is like a, um, like a divine counsel viewpoint where we are asked to participate. We, God made us to rule with him. Mm -hmm. And so I think the, the, the point of intercessory prayer um, I think is an important one, and I think evangelicals do believe in it. Um, and so now some of them might say, well, yes, God foresees that I'm going to pray. And so maybe in that sense, he's already planned out his course of action. And then, of course, but but and then there are, of course, some, some who are who take a more, more reformed view who would just say, well, prayer is really just about changing you. You don't you don't you can't possibly direct God in any way through prayer. Uh, but the question of foreknowledge makes it kind of complicated. But I do think whether God foresees it or whatever, um, ultimately, our prayers play a part. We are asked to participate. So yeah, that, but is that for other people's benefit or is that for yours? Could be for anybody's. Yeah, no, what I mean is when, <laughs> when you pray and yeah. when you're participating with God, I mean, I guess that the question is what, I mean, it's fine Nick, if you have this view, but I, I definitely yeah. would say it's not a traditional view in the sense that yeah. it's popular in any way. But to imagine that God is actually influential <laughs> or like to think that God needs you to be doing something, that. No, God doesn't need anything, but but he, he invites. Well, apparently us to he does. If, no, he, if, he invites he, us to participate. He chooses to allow us to participate. So well, that's, so yes, but then I would have problems with God's justice if God basically says, "Oh, well, actually, this person's life on the line, or this person, whatever is happening with right there, I'm not going to actually. I choose not to help them unless it turns out that the individual human I'm working with wants to and does the right thing. Oops, they didn't do the right thing." That other guy suffers for it, not just the individual. Mm -hmm. I think like that's a pretty effed up view of God. I would say well, like that. Well, that so, would be I have, a I have a question. Vision of God's justice. Yeah, I have a, a I have a question about this. And if 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 it is the case that I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. If I'm not if I'm not getting this right, but if it is the case that you you don't believe what well, you 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 employed the language of participation, 
before I say before I say what I what I what I think I want to say, can you sort of elaborate on what you mean about participation? Because it, it sort of it sort of seems to me it's like okay, well, if our prayers don't in some way, shape, or form influence God's actions in some way, then it, for me at least, it sort of calls into question. Like it's sort of causing the question, like our role, our our role in salvation. So it's like, do do we have to make a profession of faith, which is sort of like a prayer, in order to like in order to receive this particular thing from from God? So it's like it's almost like our it's almost like that particular that particular thing is like God's actions is predicated on our is predicated on our actions or is predicated on our prayer in a sense if you feel what i'm trying to say sure mm. yeah so i mean with participation when i gave my thesis statement i mentioned participation through participation in his plans and purposes through intercessory prayer and right action so i mean i think you know when matt says well it's kind of a messed up view of god if uh we need to do something in order for some some good thing to happen i mean i think that's life we have to do things god invites us to do the right thing and care for people and, and if we don't do that, then it, it's probably not going to happen. Now, God may use someone else. God has his own plans and purposes, but he includes us in that. And how that all works out with his foreknowledge and his and predestination and all these other sort of factors, that's an open question. It's not the one we're debating today. Well, but that's I do a think... little different. I think, like, uh, maybe I'm misunderstanding you and, and you're, because you're talking about intercessory prayer. And, yeah. the, and, and we were using the language of influencing God to do something. But sure. you just said something different than that. Now you just said, like, God has his plan, and he might use us in that. So, like, there's a, I mean, like, we need to distinguish here in regards to what we're saying, because otherwise I'm going to be confused really badly about whether sure. I'm agreeing or disagreeing. So yeah. I'm fine with the idea that, and I think most Christians are, that God, even if God doesn't, you know, if you want to go into open theistic debate or whatever you sure. want to imagine like okay he knows probabilities whatever that's not my point the point is god has an objective god is going to do everything god can in god's power to help events occur but that's different and then involving us obviously has to involve i mean like you know god doesn't just usually drop out of the sky and make lightning you know cause gingerbreads to you know cross over the road like that doesn't happen we usually god employs people typically yeah. to do these things um and to be part of his plan and i agree with the divine yeah. counsel image about inviting in that capacity but that's a little different than saying that god is playing with these things in the sense that if you didn't do this like god would mm. choose or work with somebody who god could see has a probability or would not end up doing the thing that needs to be done. And yeah. oops, it was a test for this person, but it didn't turn out well for sure. the other. So, oh yeah. well. So, so, so I would say it's somewhat of an open question about, <laughs> um, about the mechanism of intercession in the sense of, it, well, not the mechanism, but in the sense of um, how we bring in foreordination, how we bring in predestination, is it possible that God would would raise someone else up, raise up another pilot, for example, to make sure that Jesus was crucified, um, because that was part of His plans and purposes? Well, yeah, maybe, I, I, but but I think I think that's somewhat of an open question about what role 
Uh, you know, but but I think we we intercede expecting that somehow or another, whether it's through God's foreordination working through our prayer or whether it's just our prayer, one way or another, our prayer is affecting things. And if it, we didn't think that, we wouldn't pray. And so, really? Because I think I push back on that because I think if I am a child and I have a mother or a parent or you know whatever, I I think that if I feel very loving on them and I'm scared oh, sure. and I have limited foreknowledge of what's happening or limited context, I think that out of my own emotional state, I'm going to cry out. Or even if I know my mom is the greatest person in the world and I see my friend being hurt, I'm going to ask her to take care of something in spite of the fact that I might already know that this is the kind of thing that she's going to do. So what I would find strange is if somebody doesn't pray. In fact, it's like Marcus Borg wrote in one of his books. He said, I can't help but pray because if I didn't, I might not be, I think it was something to the effect of like, I might not even be human anymore. I might like, there might be something wrong with me that I wouldn't feel the need that I believe in this heavenly parent and that I want these things to be affected. So I guess I would, I would push back on the idea that like, oh, well, if you didn't believe it would change anything. I think like the honest view of psychology and in the Bible in general is you ask things of God with the full knowledge that you know he's going to give them to you and that Mm -hmm. he was already planning on it. And Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that your act of praying is creating the event, but it does mean that if you weren't praying, it would say something about you. It would say something about your character or your, um, your, vision of God's interest in other people. It might say you're more apathetic, but I don't mm. think it says in the opposite tradition, opposite direction, oh, if I pray, then it means God is waiting on me to do something. And I think like, I think a big prospect of this that becomes very problematic, of course, is just the Protestant dilemma about works uh, and grace. And to make sure that like we're not going in a direction where we're arguing, oh yeah, you have to do something to be saved. Right. Like it's one thing to accept what God's already doing. It's one thing. But like to suggest that our actions are actually, in a sense, negatively impacting other people and God's not doing everything God can to negate that. Hmm. I think that's a problematic vision if that was what you're suggesting. Yeah, well, I would say even a Calvinist would say that um, our uh, faith is a is the means that God has provided for us to be saved. And a Calvinist believes that God has predestined everyone who's going to be saved from eternity past. And so how that fits into God's plans and purposes is a different question, and I'm leaving it open. But what I would say is um, our intercession factors into that. So some some way or another, whether it comes in the middle or it comes in the beginning, um, things, things are different, things end up differently because of our prayer. Now, like I said, maybe that's maybe that, that maybe we play a role in the middle. That's something God has already foreordained. I'm open to that. That's fine. Um, so you, I'm just, so you're not sure. Just to be clear, you're not yeah. sure whether or not if you didn't do the prayer, if it would, if God didn't have like a better plan in place. You're not sure of that. Like you, you're okay with the idea of, oh, oops, I didn't do this, and God played with that other person's livelihood on that factor. Well, I mean, so you're okay course, with a God who plays dice like that. Most people don't like yeah, so, well, Job's conflict with with yeah. uh, Satan would, in would, those would, terms. Would you say that? Um, would you say that God foreordained Adam and Eve's sin so that He could bring about salvation, or was that something that happened um, through through choice? Well, now, whether you believe in Adam and Eve literally, I don't know. But I'm saying, according to the story, I don't know how that plays into the conversation directly. Well, yeah. So what I'm saying is, there's something that that happened that humans did that put us in a negative place. Right, well, so sure. God allowed us to make that choice. Well, now, yeah, but that th- didn't involve prayer or intercession or, or any. It involved human action. 
get involved well, right in that. but i mean that's we're not in disagreement on that we're right. talking about what god does in god's purposes to achieve his purposes and how much he does that that's my only question in regards sure. to what you're saying the yeah, idea well, that people play a role i would yeah. be surprised that anybody disagrees on that that just kind of flies yeah. like obvious yeah so well, well because it's not really the topic we're discussing i would be content with just saying um people play a role in intercessory prayer is that role However, God foreordains that means is an open question. I'm not really, I don't have a strong opinion on it. But I would say that intercession factors in and that God wants to include us in the process. And I think that Moses here is, give, is being given an opportunity to participate. Um, so that's, 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 that was the main point I was really trying to get to. Um, yeah, and I'd agree yeah. with you, but then my position would be God is bound to be sure that what God does. So you leave it open, and I'd say that if it's open, God can be demonic. So if that happens, then you run into the problem well, of Yahweh yeah. being contrary to who Yahweh is. So I so, would say I'd have to say no to that proposition yeah. that God can leave open the possibility that other people are being hurt by the fact that he didn't plan effectively. Like, not the idea that God is doing everything God can, and within freedom, there are consequences that God has to work with. That's a pretty classical position. But then to argue that God could do it another way, God chooses to do it a way in which harms people, uh, that would be a problematic suggestion. Well, and I would have to yeah. say, because it contradicts God's character as revealed through Christ and Scripture, that would that would be well, a negative. That would just well, be impossible. Yeah. Well, let, let me ask you a question, though, because it seemed that your, your objection was that Moses would say, well, the God I know d doesn't use violence. And uh, so well, I'll start by saying this, of course, first, that, that the, the word evil is ra'ah, which doesn't necessarily mean moral evil. It can also mean calamity. So I don't know that that particular word proves the point. But it does the, in the sense that it does in the sense that within Exodus 32, when Moses employs this, it is in the sense of you have done a moral wrong by bringing this this calamity on the Israelites, because, again, it is the nations who are using the phrase against Yahweh in order so that they will never trust him again. That's the context of the text. So that tells us, which is why all translations usually translate as evil, that yeah. the it may be a calamity, but the calamity is falling on them in a bad purpose, which will lead all others not to follow Yahweh. So sure. when the narrator yeah. agrees that Yahweh didn't do the calamity, the evil, it carries that moral tint onto sure. it because of how Moses expressed it in the Moses is afraid that God's reputation will be harmed um, if he brings them out into the wilderness just to kill them, right? So, well, yeah, his character would be proven to be opposite of who he was being well, said to be by Moses. Okay, so so my question is, it seems that you're saying not that um, God's character would be harmed by uh, the nation seeing that he has broken his promise, which is what I think Moses is saying. But that, that is what I'm saying. Okay, well, but it seems like you're saying that what, what the thing that <laughs> Moses is actually objecting to is that God would use violence. That Moses knows God well enough to know that he would not um, use those, employ those kinds of means. So I'm not make. So I think you're doing a bit of. So I don't make that argument in my discussion in my book regarding that chapter, regarding that story. You seem to be taking some of the later stuff that I deal with when I'm talking about Joshua and and reading it back. So what I'm doing in the book when I'm looking at that specific uh, paradigm story is I'm looking at the principles that are outlined there and the 
my issue is not whether or not Moses thought that violence was the issue that he was against. He outlines the issues he's specifically against. Now, however you want to think about what ra'ah might include, it might include violence. It might simply include being untrustworthy. It might include a number of things, depending on whatever Moses's understanding and moral conceptions are, or whatever the narrator's conceptions are. And that's fine with me. I don't need Moses to encapsulate every single thing. What I need to know is what in principle is Moses objecting to, and what in principle does this then establish? So the whole point of establishing what's happening in this story is to note Moses has the freedom to disagree with God, that Moses disagrees with God based off of God, that he appeals to God against God, that he appeals that this action is wrong because in the present because of what God has done in the past. So the standard by which Moses appeals to is in the past, but it is still God, even though it's temporally located in the past. The present version of God he's looking at, he's only able to come against because it disagrees with the God he's known. So this demonstrates that the only way in which Moses is able to accomplish this conversation with God the way he does is by appealing to God's character, because whatever is currently God in the moment before him is diverging from that character. If he was not doing that, then it would it would not lead to the propositions we're dealing with, yeah. as I explore in the many other stories where people do not appeal to God's character and they lose in sure. each case. Yeah, so I, I don't know that I I don't know that I it's clear from the text that Moses is appealing to God's character. I think he's appealing to consequences, but I, I'd be willing to So do you that believe as... that God's promises are not connected to his character or revealing his character? If he makes a covenant with Israel, that's not that's not his hesed, that's not his kindness overflowing, that's not his his identity with Israel? If we're talking well, about God's character, is it not Yahweh's identity and movement with Israel, his covenant with Abraham? Is, is this not a God of history who travels with the Israelites in the story? Is he not defined by what he does with the Israelites and what he's spoken to them in terms of promise? So what I would say is um, that God's promises do define who he is and he's held to his word. Now, <laughs> I think that that there you go. Comes, You're held that, that, to his word. Yeah, yeah, but but then it seems that that's more complicated in your view because God actually will sometimes mislead us. And and I and how, I how is that different? If God's already stated this is who I am. Yes. Okay. And yeah. then you know that, and okay. you learn that. There you go. And then suddenly God starts to act differently. Then you say exactly like Abraham does in Genesis 18. Far be it from you to do such a thing. Sure. Because you're appealing to who you know he is, what the divergence is, and you're saying that doesn't match. You're yeah, holding I, God to himself, which is something yeah. God says all the time in his text. He says constantly, uh, I swear by my name, you know, I will remain faithful, I will be true, right? Like, why is God swearing by himself to remain faithful, except yeah. for the fact that there's the possibility of someone imagining he won't be? Yeah. And he's but, promising them, nope, that's not going to happen. Remember that. Keep yeah. that in mind. But, but but according to you, though, his words are not necessarily trustworthy. It's his character that's trustworthy. So his words could be misleading. So can, but then what's the context? And that was very helpful what you said in the beginning, right? With the stories that I cover of Moses and Abraham and many others, there is a consistency to God that is always presented to them and remains, and a divergence, and then a return to the consistency. Well, it does I, not go... Yeah divergent, 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 oh, now we found the consistency. 
The consistency establishes who God is so that one recognizes the divergence. And also, in each of these cases, the character who is tested in this case, who is presented with what Martin Luther would call the devil's mask, what each of these people are tested with when they experience this, they are all the epitome of faith, right? Moses has said the next chapter that his debate and arguing with God is a description of what it means to be friends with God, talking face to face. This is the epitome of what it means to be faithful, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called uh, sanctification, an example of it happening uh, uniquely in these kinds of stories, where somebody is demonstrating their relationship with God by virtue of how they are able to equally carry the conversation with God, mano a mano. But the mano a mano only is made happen because of God having laid that foundation. So again, we have to be careful in context here. This is not just saying, oh yeah, God can't, all right, but would God? Under what conditions would God do such a thing, right? Hey Matt, I'm, um, excuse me, um, can we, yeah, yeah. Can we? because um, we've been talking about this particular, uh, this particular passage, we're almost about an hour in already, if you oh, believe wow. it. Yeah, we're already, can you um, give another example of, um, of you employing of, of you finding this you deriving this principle from a different from a different instance in scripture yeah no um you know uh not in regards to words so we can take a look at actions so this this is an important part right and it gets to the heart of who god's people are so when we look at i love it when stories have the same chapter numbers when we look at genesis 32 uh, and we're reading the story of Jacob wrestling or fighting with the with the divine being that he finds. This story is really important because one, God isn't speaking words till the end. So this isn't a debate about God's words. It's actually a debate about God's actions and God's motives and God's intentions. So here we have a story in which God comes against Jacob in the night, uh, a man, it says, and this is how Jacob is supposed to have understood this. It's kind of funny because earlier in the story it says that like he's in a place where there are Elohim. And so like it, there's the sense almost before the story begins that like, oh, this is a place where stuff is going to go down. And so then Jacob is there and it's nighttime. He sent his family away. He's worried about seeing his brother Esau. And then what we end up having happen is some man, as far as Jacob knows, grabs him and wrestles with him. The word is not specifically um, in the Hebrew, it means to get dusty. It means to be in a fight to the death, to be so uh, at each other's throats that dust flies everywhere. Your life is in danger. So, in fact, when it gets translated into the Greek, the word that's used there is even used once in the Septuagint to refer to dragons fighting each other. So this is like a super, super duper battle. Um, And so when you end up having happen here is Jacob just fighting through the night, presumably from his perspective for his life, right? And in fact, the text even states that the individual who came against him was intending to overcome him, because it says in the text, when he saw, he could not overcome Jacob, right? So there, this is a pretty, a pretty impactful event that occurs. And then, as the sun starts to rise, Jacob notices what this man is. And you realize he notices it because the next thing that happens, you know, the the man, quote unquote, is like, look, you got to let me go. This has been too long. Sun's rising. I got to go, which there's this huge irony here. 
that the individual who's a human against this individual who's clearly divine has not only withstood against the assault, but is preventing the individual, the divine being, from leaving. So this is just painting Jacob out to be, you know, truly the 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 namesake of Israel, this individual who just for all that he can holds on, and not only holds on, but with you know restrains. Um, and what's so fascinating is what it says, and what it says is that, you know, once he acknowledges that I'm not going to let you go unless you give me a blessing, what does this mean in retrospect for the story? Jacob understands this is a divine being. Either, I mean, Jacob's words will be, I've seen God face to face. So whether this is Jacob saying, I see this as an angel who's a representation of who God is, or whether he sees this as God in a direct uh, theophany, uh, it, the point is, Jacob understood as the sun rose that he was fighting with God's will. When God came to overcome him, when God came as a curse, Jacob had a choice when the sun rose, and that was, I can submit to that will. I can say, okay, God willed a curse against me. There's a judgment upon me. Oh, I, I did bad things with Esau. I, did, uh, I should submit. He doesn't. He doubles down. He fights harder. And he says, I'm not going to let you go. I'm denying your will. Because what does it mean if the divine being leaves? It means that it literally came to curse him. It failed to curse him. And now it's gone. Which means God's will was against Jacob. God was not for Jacob. And it would leave Jacob alone. It would leave Jacob with only his autonomy. Instead, Jacob says, you will bless me. Which is a way in which he affirms to God, I do not accept that you came here to curse me. This is not the God that you have been. I want a blessing because I know that's what you do. You are a God of blessing. This is the God you are. This is what you will do because it's why you came here. You did not come here to curse me. So what ends up happening? The divine being tells Jacob, your name will change. This is the blessing I'm giving you. You will be called Israel. Israel means the the God fighter. Okay? And so... He's called the God fighter. Why? Because you have fought with humans and with God and you have overcome. You have won. Not God, not the humans. You did. You came on top. But here now comes the crazy irony. Your people are Israel, those who fight God. So now this is a weird blessing, right? You are being blessed for having fought God. That will now be your calling and your name and your people's calling. They will fight God just as you have fought God. They will follow in your footsteps. But what are they fighting God? The story is clear. They're fighting God as the representation of one who comes to curse them. And instead, they are to affirm like Jacob, the only way to win the battle, God is a God who blesses. So in a sense, Israel represents those people who are fighting the negative, terrifying, wrong visions of God to affirm that God is a better character, is a blessing. And this then is their calling throughout history to actually engage with God and fight for his character to represent it correctly. And in many ways, um, this probably plays very much in hand with the you know, routine statements of God saying, if I come to you and I say, I'm going to destroy you, but you repent, I won't destroy you. You should know that. Right. Like that. This is part of God's character. I'm sure these two streams of tradition are related in the sense that when you hear God come at you and say, oh, I'm going to wipe you out. No ifs, ands or buts. You know, that's not who God is. 
I am going to fight like Jacob for that blessing and you succeed because God is a God of blessing. Well, um, I mean, I, I think that preaches, but I, I don't know if that's really what the passage is saying. <laughs> so um, I, I, I don't, I, that's probably, I don't have a lot of notes when I when I read that section because I, I, I think I found the most uh, uh, to interact with on uh, the issue of Abraham and sacrificing Isaac. But I mean, on this point, uh, you know, I, I think God, as I said, desires that we struggle with him um, honestly. Um, and I think that God desires that we seek him. And I, so I think that's the message. I don't see the passage doesn't say that the uh, the angel uh, or Yahweh uh, came to uh, curse Jacob. But we see Jacob wrestling for a blessing. Um, it says fact, specifically that he came to overcome Jacob. Overcome. Well, that, no, that's it, not what it says. Yes, it so, does. <laughs> so it what says it says. It in the text. What it says. It says see, when he saw it, that he could not overcome Jacob. Yeah, well, so, in the text. yeah so it begins in verse 24, and it starts right in. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled yep. with him until daybreak. Now, is he wrestling yeah. to curse him? Yes, is because he, the text states explicitly. It doesn't say to curse. It, it, it says, says he was not. explicitly he, he came to overcome him. And when he saw he could not overcome him. Where does it say he came to overcome him? Well, let, let's, let's use some English grammar here. If someone... Yeah says he could now he saw he could not overcome him yeah what what does that mean is it empty words or does it imply something it means it means, he's, wrestling. It means he's wrestling he was not no. able to wrestle him down he wasn't he wasn't oh, he was yeah, not wrestle him down it yeah. means you come to succeed and when you learn you cannot succeed you change plans otherwise so, that's a meaningless construction okay. of a sentence to say and when he saw he could not overcome jacob well, that would be kind of ridiculous to say unless he sought to overcome Jacob. That's the implication. I mean, if you want to say the sentence is yeah, meaningless but, no, and the English does, grammar okay, falls no, apart, no, no, okay, listen, we can deconstruct does, this. Does overcome but mean curse? Does overcome mean curse? In a battle, which is usually the word used as describing dragons fighting each other, yeah, it, it, it is used in the sense of death and life. So yes, in the context of a, remember, I already specified this, this word in Hebrew is not employed for just like, oh, it's a WWE match. This is like in the nighttime, you're getting assaulted. So this is a pretty intense uh, in meaning that the, the story wants to imply to you. Jacob has no reason to assume that in the night that there's anything uh, good about the individual fighting him. So there's a lengthy time here where he's got one thing on his mind, stay alive. In fact, even Jewish commentators imagine that this might be Esau trying to kill him. Right. This is a very long history of understanding. Yeah. This is a dark vision of God. This is very similar, in a sense, to the story in Exodus where God attacks and tries to kill Moses. And it explicitly says that he came to kill Moses. So, like, th this is mm -hmm. this is in that tradition. So, yeah. yes, I would describe that as a curse. If you want to think what well, is well, Jacob asking it. for in opposition to what happened. So yeah. if you want, if we want to play games with semantics here, sure, oh. I'd be happy to. No, I mean, no, I'd be I'm happy not. to say that Jacob wants a blessing and he doesn't want what is the opposite of a blessing. If you'd prefer me to use that more obtuse way of saying it, sure. God, Jacob is rejecting the not blessing. If that's okay, I'll be fine with that. But I think yeah. that for most people, a not blessing, the negation of a blessing would be the opposite. Well, yeah, the, the not Especially blessing in the context is, yeah. of a fight. Well, in the context of Genesis and Jacob's story, 
the blessing is what Jacob wants because he doesn't feel like he's had it. He's been on the run. Everything goes wrong for him. And so he tries to seek out God. This passage, I mean, this passage starts out of nowhere, but in the context, the broad context, it's about Jacob trying to seek out God. It's not about God coming to curse Jacob. There's nothing in the text that says that. That's your reading, and that's fine. That it fits in your interpretive grid and, and makes I, the I'm point. I'm sorry, I, I'm not getting the the sense here. Did we not confirm that the text says that when he saw that he could not, when God saw, when the divine being saw that he could not overcome Jacob, that doesn't mean anything, or it does. If it does mean something. I don't understand. Like what? It seems like you're just avoiding the text because, oh, it doesn't explicitly say at the beginning that he came to overcome. But like the implication no, I, I, I'm fine, of the I'm text. I'm fine with the, I'm fine with overcome. I mean, you know, it's it's. But um, overcome is what Jacob gets as his blessing instead. You overcame God rather yes. than God overcame you. Yeah, this he, is did, the he point did, yeah. of the irony he, at the end of the story. He didn't leave God alone. So it's like the um, we we have the story. So you mentioned the story of um. Mary uh, bugging um, the Virgin Mary, you know, his mother, bugging Jesus until uh, he performed the miracle. And there's also the the passage. No, he, about... she doesn't. She doesn't. She leaves him and then tells the the servants he's going to do it anyway. Don't listen to his no. Wait for him to tell you what he's going to do. She does not bug him. She leaves. Mary leaves Jesus at the wedding in Cana after she says no. This is not my hour. And then goes to the servants and says, "Go over there. He's going to do something." Yep. She rejects what he said and tells the servants, you're going to hear something different. And they do because she, yeah. she knows her son and knows that the hour has come. He's not going to let something like this go by. Well, that's possible. So we'll, let me move aside. Then we'll look at, for example, the parable of the unjust judge, where the point is that the woman is to persist. Right. And Jesus says that you, like this woman who is persisting and looking for justice from the unjust judge, you are to persist in coming to God. And I think that's what's going on with Jacob. The point isn't that God pretended he was going to come and curse Jacob. The point is that Jacob was wanted did not let go of God until he was blessed by God, and that we are asked to do that as well. So I'm fine but that, with that. that. That doesn't make sense. It's like you're ignoring half the whole story to get to the end when he says, I want a blessing. But the blessing he gets is not that God's with him. The blessing he gets is the name Israel, which means God fighter, the one who fights God. So this is, I mean, no offense, but I don't think your reading of the story takes into account the etymology of what the name he gets means and how it applies to the people of Israel, because this is a pretty important story. This is the fundamental origin story of where the name of Israel comes from. You can't just be like, oh, well, he just, God's with him. Well, then why did God give the name Godfighter? Yeah. And did even I, did lots I, of pastors did I say that? And, did I say that he said that the, po the point was that God was going to be with them? Or did I say the point was that he he wouldn't give up on God, that he struggled against God? Well, yeah, or but struggled what are you with struggling God? against? <laughs> well, I think he was struggling. This is the point. It's like you're trying yeah. to get the, the struggle part without the implication of like, well, what was he struggling against? Yeah. I think it's, he would like, he, yeah. is it inconsequential that that this is describing an attack at night? Is this, I mean, and this is the same God who explicitly tries to, you know, it says in Exodus 4, tries to kill Moses, uh, and Zipporah ends up saving his life by doing a certain action. I mean, again, like we're dealing here with a genre in which you have God acting, and the text is pretty clear, God is violent towards Jacob. Yes. This is, right? But then I don't understand, if God acts violently towards Jacob at night when Jacob doesn't know it's God, how do you, do you Jacob, think Jacob- Jacob doesn't know it's God? Yes, because it's nighttime. The story implies to us that only when the sun rises does he actually demand a blessing because he can actually see what's in front of him. Yeah, I, I, I think there's there's a lot of reading in that you, you do here. Okay, and, and so, I think in a few so other you places. think that you think it doesn't matter at all that the story took place at pitch black night.
you don't think that plays a role at all in the fact of a, well, he of, says, of a midnight he says, assault and the fact says, that it's just and the fact that the text explicitly says it's just the man. And by the end of the text, Jacob says it's God. You don't well, think says, the narrator's yeah, trying the man, to play the, with the fact yeah. that he only saw a man at night and the yeah. fact that when dawn came, now he understands it's God. You don't so think the, that that yeah. plays the, a role. The man says, yeah, the man says, let me go for the dawn is breaking. And then Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So why is he wrestling with him all night? And the guy's trying to get out of there. Why does Jacob keep wrestling with him? Then he says, no, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I think the point is he's been wrestling for the blessing all night. But, he knows who he's wrestling but with. But you're, you're, you're reading the text terribly. The text tells us that it's only when morning's rising that the angel says that he needs to leave. He yeah. doesn't try to leave earlier. There's Jacob is the one fighting him off. Then it says in the text that he goes ahead, the divine being strikes him at his hip like a dirty move in order to try and make him stop, uh, uh, stop uh, fighting him off. He still ends up fighting him off and he gives up. It says when he saw he couldn't win even with that, he says, okay, I'm, I'm, I need to leave. Yeah. Let me go. So I don't understand. It's, you want to say I'm reading into the text, but you're the one here ignoring aspects of the text. And then you're trying to say, oh, he's doing it all night when the text itself tells us he only tries to get away from Jacob by morning with the sun rising. I know I, I, what I'm, I'm not trying to get at you personally. I'm just trying to say you seem very reticent to accept the broader implications of what it means for Jacob to be receiving the title, the one who fights God yeah. as I, a blessing. Yeah. And you're trying to, and I understand in the context of the, the Esau story, there's a wider context for how this fighting and stuff fits into the psychology of Jacob. I agree. But mm -hmm. to ignore the fact that this is the pivotal foundation moment for what defines the people of Israel cannot yeah. be relegated simply to the relationship of Jacob and Esau yeah. and Jacob's personal psychological relationship with God. There's a deeper purpose here so that all of Israel can see themselves in a positive way, blessed to be those who fight God. Now, how mm -hmm. you explain how it's possible to be a blessing to fight God is the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, I, I think if the idea is that- If you don't have that, yeah. then you potentially run into the conflict of saying like, oh yeah, we're supposed to just argue with God, which doesn't make sense. Like there, no, there I, has I, to I, be I, an I, internal I principle. Yeah. We're supposed to not let go, God go no matter what. I mean, I think that's the idea. And so, I mean, I understand Agreed. what you're- Yeah, so I understand what you're saying. I think if there was more, I feel like there was more in the text of what, that what's the, as kind of along with your, your view here that supported this, especially in the immediate context, I would go with it. But he doesn't. <laughs> well, I find say, this funny. I find this funny though. Like, is your standard for me? Is your standard for me in terms of what I need to demonstrate from the text higher than we usually ever apply to anybody who? No, does I, I disagree because I think you come out of this in your book and, and in, in this conversation with like this is what it means, and you say, well, God came there to curse him. Text doesn't say that. Then you say, well, Jacob realized that this was God only in the morning. Text doesn't say that either. And so now, you could read that. That's fine if you want to say. I think how that many that things could we? go through in scripture where people debate and they have very little foundation for it, much less than this. And they're trying to argue that this is a foundation to Christianity. If you depart well, from this, you're a heretic. If you say, yeah. I don't understand. Well, that's changing the subject, but I agree if anybody does that, then that, that's, that's unreasonable. But that's majority. <laughs> I mean, majority of Christians experience that. Yeah. And I don't understand, like, this is not, I'm not even making negative claims here. I, I'm worried that in your vision, if we're not making the claims I'm making here, we're going to have a very bad vision of God coming out of this. It's going to seem very unintelligible, illogical, 
And also just anti-God's character is revealed in Scripture. If we are not able to find a way to understand what God is doing with Jacob in a positive light, which it implies is a positive light. Yeah, then I agree it's positive. Just, Did I say it was negative? The implication, you're trying to say that God does not come as a curse. Yeah. Flies in the face of the fact that the text said that he had the intention to overcome. It didn't say the, the intention, but yes, go on. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, sure, that's fine. He, I, he said he, I he will said not was, continue yeah, sorry, sorry, I'm sorry. I will I'm not sorry, continue I'm the sorry. interview. I'm, no, 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 I'm, I'm not going to continue until you explain how, as we've already gone a thousand times over, I want the full answer from you. Otherwise, I don't know why you're not agnostic on this point, because you're acting as though you're, you're, you're strongly against it, uh, as though you know definitively. Otherwise, I'd expect you to be agnostic. How do you negate the fact that it says that when he saw that he could not overcome him? Yeah. So what, what does that mean for you? Yeah. So what, what I was starting to say when I, when I said, hold on, hold on, was because I thought you were going to say that he came there to curse him, which is what you said earlier, which is not what you just said. You said he was trying to overcome. I agree that he was there to overcome. That's correct. Okay. That's what the text and, says. And let's follow the logic game here. If he comes yeah. to overcome him, okay, which means he wins. And what are they doing that he would need to win? It's a battle. It is a fight. So yeah. my question is, um, you know, what would you describe that as? God coming to battle you and overcome you, and the implication you experience is, oh crap, God's going to try to kill me like he's going to try to kill Moses later. How do you not experience that as curse-like in reflection on the fact that Moses, I mean, Jacob is getting a blessing at the end by mm -hmm. his his standing on like there's a contrast here it even ties the blessing of jacob with the fact that you overcame god god did not overcome you so mm -hmm. i'm fine if the issue's you know a language game here i don't like the word curse okay that's fine then offer a different word but to just deny that there is an intention presented perceivable to jacob of harm of yeah. being overcome in a violent fight to deny that is to deny just what the text is saying in its plainest reading. Yeah. And most Christians through history understood that reading. They saw God as coming against Jacob. Sure. So I, so, so the, there's two things I, I would say. One thing is the text doesn't actually say who picks the fight. Um, but the fact that Jacob won't let the angel go suggests that What do you mean it doesn't Jacob. say who picks the it fight? Says, He's there camping and Jacob suddenly was left a stranger alone. comes. Yeah. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. It, doesn't, it, there's, it, bas it begins like in the middle of the action. He's wrestling with this man. So who so who starts the fight? It's not clear. I'm sorry. I, 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 find but, that, I find that a bit ridiculous. Okay. But here's what I would say. In the context of the passage. You're reading a lot to try and avoid. Well, well, no. Okay. Okay. Jake, wait, Jake, wait, 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 Jacob. wait, 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 wait. We, we we've been going on we've been going on a while and, and, and at this particular at this particular point, so um, can can we um, can we sort of move on to a um, to a different point that either Cody or Matt would like to make because um, it's, it's 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 sort of it's sort yeah and and, and I, I I don't want that to happen and I'm I'm sorry Matt if you feel frustrated I, I I have a different reading here and than you do I don't think that makes you a bad person I'm not agitated no, I, but I, I just I, I, I think that we need to agree as Richard Friedman widely wisely put it the greatest hypothesis is the one that makes the most use of the most evidence and yeah. between you and me I would say your hypothesis requires you to really try to chop away at quite a lot of things to say that oh okay 
I'll ignore that. I'll take that differently. I'll do that as opposed to what I think in my hypothesis, all I'm doing is, oh, here's a vision in which we can yeah. incorporate this all. You don't have to agree with it. I understand that. Well, yeah. But I, you I, are kind of coming at this by telling me I'm the one who's misreading these things. I'm the one adding these things. And from yeah. my perspective, it's quite the opposite. You're the one not looking at certain things or attempting to not take the simplest meaning of something in order to kind of, exp I, I just don't understand why there's a fight over this, as opposed to like, we're not even discussing the question of the thesis of the book. We're not even discussing right, whether and or not, I, and I you know, agree. can you disagree with God and how does that affect inerrancy? Yeah. And what does that mean about a relationship with the divine and human in which you can do these things? Sure. We're having an exegetical struggle in which you're primarily just nitpicking about, oh, well, I don't want to view it that way. All right. As and opposed to the fact that you could even just say it's legitimately both ways, which would be fine. But you're not making that case. You're trying to make a case of, well, you read it this way. And that I think you're reading into it and you're making it. I don't understand, especially on a point in which in both of our cases, we're interested in having God look good. We're both interested in having God uh, be the blessing that he is. I don't understand then why um, this seems like a problem to have God be doing what the text says. Right. And this, this sort of seems to me, it, it sort of seems like, like I'm, I've been, I've been listening this, this entire time. It sort of seems like it, it doesn't really like the way in which you Matt are interpreting it and the way in which, um, Cody is interpreting it. It's, it's, it's like it, like it doesn't really mean, it doesn't really mean a lot in the overall scheme, in the overall scheme of what you're trying to, of, of what like we're trying to argue here, or what you're trying to argue, so I I, well, I would say that we could we should just move on to a, to a different section. It does have a bit of meaning. It does have a bit of meaning because if you don't recognize or understand correctly what the name of Israel means, then you don't you're not creating a system in which you can situate Moses and situate Abraham. You're not finding the the consistent key that flows throughout scripture to help you tie in what this motif is that then Jesus goes ahead and repeats in the gospels. So if you're not able to recognize what God is calling Israel to through this event, if you don't understand what does it mean for, for instance, Cody uses this phrase of like, well, he, he didn't let go. Okay, that's correct. But he didn't let go when God wanted to let go. Okay, so when God wants to let go, we have a word for that. It's called to be forsaken. Okay, so Jacob here is fighting against forsakenness. He's fighting against both what has just occurred, which Cody wants to fight about, but he's also fighting against forsakenness, about what it means for God to forsake you, and right, and what is this given as the promise at the end that you overcame God, you won. Now that's got to mean something. And it can't just be dismissed in the sense of, well, he held on. Well, then it should say he held on. He didn't let go. Winning against God is a little different than to say that, oh, well, you just held on. Holding on is one thing. Fighting against God's will and winning is a different thing. So that's a really important you know, premise, because if you see this in Jacob, it helps to give a lot more clarity to what we see with Moses, because this is part of the tradition that Moses is working with. This is the same Yahweh who wrestled with Jacob and Jacob won that we have Moses wrestling with God on Sinai. So like you have to 
it matters to recognize these points. What does it mean to say Jacob overcomes, wins against God? What does that imply about God? What does it imply about the people of Israel? What does this do for our vision of God's relationship with humanity? If we cannot look at that and, and we just dismiss it as, you know, oh, let's ignore the overcoming part and just think of it in terms of holding on. Let's ignore that God wants to forsake Jacob and Jacob doesn't let him. If we ignore these problematic aspects to just clean it up, we're going to lose the whole point of why would the people of Israel be proud to be called as a blessing those who fight against God? In what sense is it a blessing to fight against God? What are they fighting against that is actually, ironically, for God? If we cannot recognize that, as Martin Luther pointed out, then we're, we're failing to understand the story. And this is, you know, uh, I think that's why it matters deeply if you don't take the meaning of this name and how it's applied throughout Israel's history. If you don't take that into account, you just limit it to an idea of Jacob's personal struggle and his relationships with Esau, then you miss the whole point that this is an etymology of Israel as a nation, not simply the story of Jacob. So that has to have meaning for us, especially as Christians, too, in terms of thinking through who is God's people that continue to be spiritual Israel, continue to be literal Israel. How do you understand the role and calling of God's people? And how does this play, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about, with the idea of sanctification, which he argued this story is an example of what it means to have sanctification, what he's undergoing in his fight against God. But to be sanctified, you have to know what's holy. To be in the state, you have to be recognizing the difference between what is right, what is wrong. In what sense is Jacob doing that? So if you want to call it a curse that he's fighting against with God, that's you can do that like I have. Or if you want to say it's a not blessing, it's the opposite of a blessing. It's the God who attacks you. You can call it by whatever name you mean. But there's something that Jacob has overcome with God. And we shouldn't like not pay attention to that because that is a central theme to every other story that you look at that falls under it. Well, I, I, I don't want to get too hung up on this point because, like you said, we haven't covered that much so far. Um, and uh, so I, I'd, be con I'd be consent to let the, uh, the previous comments stand and uh, allow the, the listener to be able to look at that scripture and, and see what they think about it. Yeah. Um, but but if, if there's another question or another issue you wanted to turn to, I'd be happy to do that because I, I don't know how, how long everybody's got here to be here. I think we've already. Yeah, I know. It's, it's gone. It's gone 15 minutes over so far what I thought it was going to be. I would which, be curious. I would which, be curious. Which I, I, I was going to say, I, I think it's it's it, it serves the purposes of his book, because I think those are actually probably the strongest passages for his position. I think there's others that I didn't, eh, but but I, I get what he's saying at the very least with those two. I follow that. I, I would love to, to bring up one other story to br bridge this, because there's some viewers or other people who would look at this and say, oh, well, it's just happening in the Hebrew Bible. That's That's just an event that's occurring there. But I'd like to think through this in respect to the story of Jesus with the Canaanite woman. Right, where we have this very intriguing story where Jesus is walking in the Gospel of Matthew and there's a woman calling out to him. And the disciples have been walking with this woman calling out to them for a while because for whatever reason, Jesus has been ignoring her. He hasn't sent her away and he hasn't answered her. So she just keeps calling out and they keep walking. And then they come to him and say, hey, if you're not, you know, not going to help her, send her away. 
Okay, and the woman is is described as Canaanite. So she's used with this very derogatory, very biblically infused uh, term to reference someone who is totally, you know, of the other, the one who God was against before. And so now you have God, I mean, Jesus, yeah, same thing, going ahead and walking with the disciples. And they're like, look, send her away if you're not going to help her. Somehow during that altercation, the woman manages to run in front and falls down at Jesus' feet. So now Jesus says to the woman, you know, she's like pleading, please help my daughter. And he says, I was not, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Yeah. My mission, it's, my mission is just to them, not your, you. I'm not here to help you. She ignores that. So that's interesting. She ignores it. She persists and says, no, 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 no. Um, please help my daughter. Okay. Now Jesus goes ahead and gives a logic game. He says, look, miracles are, are kind of like, um, are like food, you know, uh, I'm a parent. I have to give to the children, right? So you're a dog, you're an other, you're a Gentile, a derogatory term used back then. You're a dog, okay? So since you're a dog and their children, would it make sense for me to give this food to them or to you? Of course not. If I give it to the children, I don't give it to the dog. And if I give it to the dog, the children don't get it. What kind of parent would I be if I gave it to the dog rather than the children? It's a zero-sum logic game that he plays here. And what does the woman do? She says, you're wrong. That's not correct logic because you've forgotten, oh Jesus, that actually the crumbs fall. So the dogs get something. It is not zero sum. Sum does come down. So now then it says, in both the Mark version, it says that Jesus immediately lights up and says, for saying that, your daughter's healed. For saying that word, for saying this thing, then in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, wow, great is your faith. This is incredible. Your daughter is healed. So in what sense are we looking at the story and not recognizing, one, the similar motif, kind of similar of what we saw with Moses in Exodus? We have a woman faced with Jesus. Jesus is telling her no. The woman is saying yes. And then she gives a counter argument. In this case, it's on logic. But logic, many Christians would argue, is a characteristic of who God is. Um, and so when you're dealing with this story here, what's so fascinating is this extra layer, which is that actually the disciples are watching this whole thing happen. And in chapter 10, Jesus had told the disciples when he gave them their marching orders, you are not to go to the Gentiles. I was sent only to Israel. So he actually tells them the thing that the woman rebuts. They accept it. They have believed it. They now come to this story. They're now thinking they know the answer. And now Jesus reverses it. Yep, she's right. And for, for, for arguing with me, for disagreeing, your daughter is healed. Good job. Great is your faith. What does that mean about the faith of the disciples? They had believed and just accepted what Jesus told them without question because it agreed with their prejudice. Now, suddenly, they find out the Canaanite woman's got greater faith than they do. The Canaanites have just displaced these Israelites as being a better faith. And this is an important example, again, of what is being illustrated here, that God does both in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament say things where he expects you to resist, expects you to know that this is not correct. It is not that you're appealing to a higher standard than who God is. 
you are appealing to God in order to make that standard, whether that is the characteristics of God, like logic, or whether it is God's specific characteristics in relationship to Israel through its history. You are calling on God as the foundation for why you can say no to what you are experiencing. And she celebrated for this reason for saying that, for rebutting Jesus when the disciples didn't. And that's incredible because, again, it falls into that trend of what the name Israel signifies, how Jesus is enlarging this, and gives us a good um, hermeneutical vision of the principle that just because Jesus or God tells you something does not settle that issue. There is a standard higher. That standard's God himself. God himself as he's established himself. And you have to know who God is in order to be able to evaluate what God is telling you, to know whether or not God is trying to test your knowledge of him or God is actually instructing you. I don't know, Cody, what did you, what did you think of that story? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, on one level, it's not as if um, more conservative scholarship hasn't taken a, a sort of a similar view to what you're saying. I, I think part of it is... Um, I think at the very at the very least there, there's a core in what you're saying that I think makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's maybe the expansion of it that, that I where I, I kind of disagree a little bit. But in particular, the story with Moses, um, I think conservative scholarship has tended to say, yeah, this was probably God, you know, testing Moses to try to pull something out of him, right? And I think you could say that this is probably what's happening here as well. Um, one thing I, I would want to highlight though is that in this story, Jesus is both, um, I think, validating the past and pushing to look, pointing toward the future. Because on the one hand, he is pointing out the fact that God had a special purpose for Israel that was for Israel. But then he also is pointing forward to this future thing where what came to Israel also goes to the world. And so I, I, I only mention that because I think it's important to note that God, um, that Jesus affirms what we find in the Old Testament. He affirms the sweep of it. Um, and, 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 you know, but, but also is trying to point forward to what the Old Testament itself points forward to, which is the inclusion of the Gentiles. Um, I I don't know how the phrase um, "I was sent only to Israel" can be interpreted as "I'm also sent to the Gentiles." Yeah, I, I think that's that's when his affirmation of her comment, right, when she says, um, "Yes, no. Lord, even the dogs feed on the crumbs that fall from no, the table." No, that's before. That's his opening statement to her in the Gospel of Matthew when she falls down. I was sent only to the yes. lost sheep of Israel. That's yeah, not. A, then, yeah, it's a dismissal which she then fights against. So I sure. don't know how that dismissal of only sent can also mean, oh, it's pointing towards the idea that God's going to include well, no, 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 or yeah, that yeah. it's primarily a special sure. place for Israel. I mean, it's yeah. it's pretty it's pretty zero sum, just like Jesus's answer. Yeah. Well, um, I think in Jesus's earthly mission, it's true that he was sent only to the house of Israel. But so I think that that is true. But then he also so but I'm not just looking but then at that after verse. this event, he goes on to other Gentile places. Yeah, and you can find so a couple if he was places. sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, how come he's going to all these other places too afterwards? Yeah, I and think how come this statement of Jesus is only remembered in all of the tradition, both canonical and non-canonical, as only in this woman's case, not as a not remembered by the Christian community as like a general teaching to be remembered as something reflective on him? Um, so a couple questions there. So what what I would say, I guess, is that I'm looking not just at the one verse, but I'm looking at the few verses that are there. And so when he, when, when he affirms um, what she says, that it's not good to take— uh, So he, uh, she says, even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. He says, your woman, your faith is great. It should be done as you wish. Now, 
Jesus's mission is not really to Gentiles. Now, there's a couple times where he does, like this, in this occasion, a miracle for a Gentile. Um, but it is primarily to the Jews, and he's there to finish up that mission. It expands after. It doesn't expand until after his resurrection and ascension. So I don't think he's lying there. I don't think he's saying anything incorrect. Um, but, I, but I do think her statement, so he, he is kind of pulling something out of her that ends up being a true statement that, affirm, that he affirms that does point forward. That's what I'm getting at with that. Okay, but what she, what, okay, that's fine. Uh, but I mean, the point is that what she affirms is that he's wrong. Well, I guess in a sense that's true. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Um, yeah, she doesn't she affirm said, that. She she affirms that his idea that this would only be 100% to the children or 100% to the dogs is a flawed analogy. Sure. So yeah, she says, yes, even even the, the, the dogs will get the crumbs. Right. right. So Jesus says something that's technically illogical, wrong. She pushes against that, corrects him. And, she, and he's like, yeah. Now, that has huge implications then for any ideas of inerrancy, any ideas of understanding God's relationship to humanity and what we do when we're reading these texts that report God's speech to us. It matters to understand that on principle, there's an asterisk next to any claim that God's words are always trustworthy. Asterisk, except when God's testing you. And that matters because in all our conversations about inerrancy as a possibility or non-possibility, we usually are not invoking this fact. And it plays a huge role because if there's ever an asterisk next to inerrancy, it's no longer inerrancy. Mm -hmm. It ceases to be the classic formulation because now you need to invoke another standard to determine whether or not the words you're reading are a test or whether or not they are in fact uh, yeah. representative teaching. So I think that would be true if there were places in Scripture. Well, I guess this is, that's kind of your thesis, because what I would say is the few places you point to provide a larger context that makes sense of the statement. And so God doesn't say, I'm going to say something wrong and leave it there. There's there's always some kind of a uh, conclusion that's reached as a context that makes sense of the rhetorical thing that God's doing to try to bring something out. And I think to go from that, so let's say so let's say I agree with you completely. That happens in a few places in the Old Testament, once or twice in the New Testament. Right. That There's doesn't, an asterisk. That, that, yeah. That doesn't mean that every time we read something in the Bible that stands alone and doesn't and God doesn't contradict it, um, or, or 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 show that it was meant to be, you know, had some sort of another purpose for it, that it was meant to bring something out. That that means that anytime we read anything in the Bible, um, we can question it. That it's it might be wrong, and that the standard for judging that is. Um, to to start to basically to start with a we can't think of the word we know we don't we don't so, like the word benign but to start with a very um, uh, you know kind of a doting picture of God or something I don't know <laughs> okay so so this is an interesting question so the woman's only ability to overcome Jesus in this debate that happens in Matthew is precisely because of logic human mm -hmm. logic logic that we affirm comes from God but logic. Okay, mm -hmm. she uses her human faculties, doesn't even quote scripture, doesn't quote Jesus' character back to him or something he previously said, just uses standard, you know, logic. Okay, yeah. so if we recognize that, now what happens when you're reading scripture and you find Jesus said something else or God said something else that you find illogical? Now it's not okay? It was okay for her when they only had the Hebrew Bible scriptures for her to do it with God in person randomly, but we who are reading scripture can't have the exact same experience that she did as a penultimate example of faith. We have to suspend our logic unlike she did, even though her logic is no different than the logic we practice today. 
somehow she's special and we aren't. We can read scripture in this case, but we can't apply it to our own lives. That seems like a strange proposition. Well, that, that, that's an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting response. Um, well, so, well, actually, I might let that stand for just a second because I did want to ask, because you brought this up with Moses, um, and it was a point I was actually going to bring up as well with Moses, which was what what might have uh, what might God have done if Moses had answered differently? And I guess I would ask about this woman, what might Jesus, would Jesus have said the thing about not throwing um, uh, food to the dogs if he knew that she wasn't going to respond the way she did? And I, I think that that factors into this question because I think if we, if we believe that God is at least trustworthy to, enough to provide a context in which those kinds of questions can be asked in a rhetorical way and the right answer will come out of it and we can trust in that. That's very different than sort of saying, well, we're kind of on our own now. And so no, that's, that's... And I agree. I, yeah. We're on the same page. And this is the whole point of my book. The point of the book is you can't leave it. At, once you've established that God is doing this phenomenon and you've established that it should, in theory, be applying to you just as much as it did them, if not more, since we're reading humans writing about God as opposed to humans directly with God. There's already in theory here a certain, you know, it would be kind of silly to be like, oh, yeah, you can argue with God. But when humans write about God, you can't argue with them. It's like the whole face of the Old Testament and idolatry and everything would fly in your face. Like, wait a minute, uh, that doesn't make theoretical sense. But once you've established that you can do this thing, now you run into the problem of, well, right, but then the whole point is they had a consistency or there's a standard that they're reaching out to. How do we have that? How does scripture manage to give us that while at the same time presenting this unique phenomenon and its ability to occur. And I think that's the whole point that I try to outline through the book, is you have to chart a trajectory. So one way to do that is to look at the stories in which people argue with God and win. And then note, what are the things that they did that allow them to win? Um, what are the things that allow you to say, okay, these things went that direct? What are the things when they lost? What battles lost? Okay, well, then you can figure out if that trajectory goes that way and this trajectory goes that way. Now, let me read through Scripture and let me go to the New Testament. Let me look at the life of Christ, God incarnate, God in the flesh for all people, all time. And let's see, does that trajectory of positive wins against God match up with the characteristics that we see in Jesus? Oh, we do. Okay. And if you can get that symmetry there, then you can use Christ, those characteristics, and you can read in a logical fashion across Scripture using that hermeneutic so that you are then seeing a harmony between the Old and the New Testament pointing in the direction of God's character so that, now this is the tricky part, so that in broad categories like hate and love, one can determine that if Christ shows us and the testimony of different people's interactions with God shows us God is love and not hate, then we know you can't turn right and left at the same time. And if you go right, you're heading in the opposite direction of left. And if you're consistent, you don't turn. So since God is one who doesn't change and one who is consistent, then that means that when looking at what God is doing in Scripture, one has to be able to say, as they're reading, if something in a broad sense starts to turn the other way, okay, that, that's, not, that's not representative of God's character. I'm going to have to read that a different way. I'm going to have to understand what's happening here differently, precisely because this hermeneutic has demonstrated the direction God should be going in, and this direction would be diverging. And just like Moses or Abraham or otherwise, I'd need to, out of faith, say, 
this is divergent. I can't just accept this. I have to handle this. I have to understand what to do with this. And again, this can bring up questions of inspiration. People can be like, well, what does that mean about the Bible's inspiration? Is that part not inspired? Is that part inspired? Well, that's kind of silly because Jesus is fully divine and fully human. That means everything Jesus does is inspired. Everything he's doing is inspired. And yes, to be crass, it means that when he goes to the bathroom, it's inspired. It's not as if we would go ahead and start saying, Jesus went to the loo and that part was uninspired. <laughs> then he came back to his divinity. That's not how it works. The Trinity, the, the Nicene Creed, everything is pretty clear. God is at all times holy, at all times. And, there, and you think that's a silly example, perhaps, but actually second century Christians were debating whether or not Jesus could have defecated, precisely because they thought that that would be unholy. And they thought, well, that you can't have, a, a, have Jesus be, be God on earth and be doing those disgusting things. But the fact of the matter is, just as today we're comfortable with the fact that Jesus is fully human, and in his full humanity is also fully divine, we can also accept that when we see, you know, that's a byproduct, what Jesus has to do as a human being, it's a byproduct of his humanity. It doesn't mean it's special, but it also doesn't mean it's exemplary, but it doesn't mean it's uninspired. In the same sense, when people are reading scripture and they see the divergence, they see something going against God's character, it does not mean that's not inspired. That's a byproduct of the human writer expressing about God. And the fact that you have the hermeneutic ensures that you never have to be concerned about that. Now, where it would get trickier is where there's more nuance, where things are not, strictly speaking, settled as to whether they're left or they're right. And those are where I think the debates I'd like to see start changing. This is why I developed the hermeneutic. It's why I wrote the book because I want to see our Christian debates go beyond inerrancy, non-inerrancy, and move to the question of what is the heart of God? What is uh, the actual character of God on display here? Is this issue or subject in harmony with the character of God? If that's not the question, then we're just going around in circles about what we think is inspired or not, or what we think is uh, something that is authoritative or not. And those are, those are not going to be helpful debates, since throughout Scripture, the whole point is about God's character, not about whether God said this or said that. The issue is God's character. His words should reflect that character. But as we've seen with these asterisks, there is precedent in the Bible to warn you that sometimes God is, in fact, testing you in your knowledge of his character. And if these people could go through their lives and their testimonies of faith and then get a test at the end of it, there is no reason why, with the accumulated amount of Scripture, God cannot also put you on a test to know, do you discern God's character in Scripture, and can you recognize byproduct from what is intention? So um, I, I've got maybe, well, I was going to say two pieces, but then the last thing you said made me think of the third one. Um, th three quick p uh, pushes of feedback. Uh, uh, wait. Anyway. <laughs> uh, pieces of pushback, rather. Um, so the first thing was, um, I guess, what's the intention of God uh, in these examples if we say that um, that he is saying something incorrect, for example, to the Canaanite woman or to Moses or to Abraham? So I'd say, what's the point? Is the point that he is, wants to give them an opportunity to correct him? Or is the point that he is hoping to bring something out of them through this kind of rhetorical thing and that it'll be clear to them when it's over what's going on? So that's one. And then my second thing is, um, I think if, if Scripture is inspired and profitable for teaching, as, as Paul says that it was, and I think as Jesus would agree with, 
um, I don't think we're going to find it teaching error about God. And I, I want to clarify what I mean by that. Because yes, you might find a verse or a couple words said by someone or whatever in, at one place or another. But if you look at the context of what's being said, the broader sweep of that, you can understand that there is a message. There's a trajectory. That, there's something that's being pointed to there. And you can't just take that one verse by itself. Agreed. Now, but the problem, I think, with, with what you're saying is that you're actually saying um, that we might pick up something in Scripture and read it, and if we look closely, it, we, it may not actually be clarified, that we have to go some, somehow outside of Scripture and work that out with God. That Scripture itself might tell us something that God said that never tells us that God didn't say it or that God was using it as a test or that, or in any kind of way suggesting that it was rhetorical, but that it, wa that it was, in fact, something that God didn't really mean. So that, that's, that's, I guess... I would I, not that's say you have to go outside Scripture. Well, you maybe say go to other Scriptures, but you're also talking about relying yeah, on I what you know of God. Yeah. Well, you just so the, said it. You already, in your first question, pointed out the, the idea of the idea that when you look at Scripture and you see a, a verse, you look at it in total context. You're looking at the cloud of witnesses. So what I'm saying is stop trying to pretend the verse doesn't say the bad thing it does. Just mm -hmm. recognize what it plainly says. And yeah. then recognize that because we have a cloud of witnesses, that trajectory determines where Scripture goes. So even if Hebrews 6 tells us that there's only one and one time to be forgiven after baptism, the whole of Scripture and the whole of the New Testament does not agree with that. And we don't have to twist Hebrews 6 to say something well, it doesn't say. In order to accept that, we can accept that Hebrews 6 is giving us a byproduct of its humanity, but that the canon and the totality of the cloud of witnesses helps us to relegate that to the side, to give priority to Jesus, and to give priority to the overall trajectory of Scripture. We don't have to pretend the Bible doesn't say bad things in order to agree that Scripture perfectly is pointing us in the right direction should we have the right hermeneutic employed, which yeah. Christ is giving us. Well, I guess what I'm saying, though, is it seems to me that you're saying this verse might be wrong, but we might know that because we look at some other verse somewhere else in a, an entire different book, an entire different context. And what I'm saying is, in the examples that we've looked at, they're all examples where it's clear that God is saying something to bring something out. And that, there's, that he doesn't leave it sitting on the table like that. And I think what you're saying is there's plenty of places where God has left things sitting on the table. And I guess that's what I'm that's mm -hmm. what I'm pushing back against. Sure. So to clarify, right, I'm not you're you're mixing two things up. Yes, we have stories in the Bible where God himself is the one speaking and is the one who goes ahead and directly says something to test the individual. We don't have that knowledge. We're reading a text in which humans are writing, describing things about God and teachings that would apply to God. So there's a slight difference here in the sense that we don't have to immediately assume that something in Scripture that's wrong is God testing us. We can, as I've been saying, assume that this is a byproduct of the person's limited humanity, their limited ability to understand perspective of who God is. They will get something wrong. For example, Abraham in Genesis 18, he, you know, he objects to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, not out of some altruistic love for all the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, but because his big issue is, is Lot going to die because of them? And his big concern is limited to specifically Lot. Okay. I would disagree with Abraham and think, well, you should have had a bigger perspective. You know, you should have had a more wider uh, vision of God's care. And I think Moses goes more in that direction as time continues and then Jesus onward. But the point is, 
Um, I don't have to look at that and say when I read a scripture and go, oh, okay, well, this is now no good because the person who wrote this didn't have a wide enough vision of grace or they didn't have a big enough vision of, of where God's spirit was taking them. I can look at that and say, oh, okay, this is a byproduct. But it doesn't negate the fact that God has revealed that there is a bigger vision of grace. So I can read the book of um, Joel, and I can read his really terrifying and terrible vision of leading all the Gentile nations to be slaughtered. And you know, saying that salvation will only be found in one little city uh, if you happen to be inside of it. I can look at that vision and I can see how he takes the prophets and twists their words and says, no, uh, I want you to twist those uh, those plowshares into swords and I want you to I want you to make weapons against God. And yeah, I can look at that and I can say, yeah, but I also have Micah. I also have Isaiah. And so I have the testimony of Scripture to let me know, ah, yeah, in context, in the canon, a canonical reading, Joel here is demonstrating his biases. Joel here is demonstrating his prejudices, no different than Jonah demonstrated his prejudices. Except, unlike Jonah, we're not getting a critique of Joel, we're getting his own words just directly. Well, so Matt, I don't um, think that the consequences lead to a different vision. It's just a more, I want to be more radically honest about what the texts say and just accept that they don't say things that are very good, but it doesn't negate the fact that we have the cloud of witnesses and the whole testimony of Scripture, which point the trajectory for us to follow, a trajectory confirmed by Christ. And I think if that's our aim, then we're able to come to more fruitful discussions than did God say that or did God not say that? Mm -hmm. Well, you could debate for ages about that. Yeah, I, I have I have a question before you um, say any say anything, Cody. I, sure. I was just we're I was, probably gonna have to be wrapping. Yeah, yeah, up, we'll so. have to wrap it up. <laughs> but um, I, I guess I guess my my question would be, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just trying I'm trying to understand. I've been following, but is it the fact that like particularly in terms of uh, Hebrews five? I think that's what you said. That's the that's the scripture. Hebrews six. Hebrews six. Um. Is that the passage where it says is is now appointed for a man to die once and then face judgment? Is that is that where is that that? No, it, it's the pat. Uh, I'm not sure how close that is to the passage um, mm -hmm. that I'm talking about. The one I'm talking about is where it says that um, there there is no salvation. There is no salvation for one who's 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 been baptized and then falls away. Oh, okay. Or so no, one who falls away after baptism, one who sins after baptism. Um, oh, okay. That that was a major discussion in the early church. And in fact, the Shepherd of Hermas, which was canonical for many Christians for around two centuries or so, mm -hmm. um, was uh, very popular. It was by a prophet who lived like 20 years after, 30 years after Revelation uh, was written. And then he went ahead and it was given a vision, he said, in which he was able to reveal, ah, there's at least one more time after you've been baptized you can be forgiven mm. like that's how great god's grace is you can go once more and you know that was a big debate for the early church and then eventually they just they eventually just decided nope we're going with uh, the testimony of jesus forgive over and over again we're going with the other scriptures that reveal god's uh, unlimited grace and unfortunately rather than acknowledge and recognize as a tradition that the text that they're ignoring were wrong what Christians have just tended to do is ignore them, much like slavery texts. Just, oh, let's ignore that those really say what they do and pretend that actually it's something different, when previously they were all of one accord that those other texts were the thing. And I guess what I'm trying to get at here by referencing texts like Hebrews 6 is just, yeah. let's be super honest on what the Bible is actually saying and be okay with the fact that we're at odds with it. 
And you because know, we're not at odds with the Bible, we're at odds with that specific byproduct of that biblical writer's humanity in contrast to the overwhelming uh, testimony of the rest of Scripture. Right. So is it, would, would you say that, I mean, because I'm, the, the, what I'm not following is that, um, let's just say this is, the, and this particular scripture in, in terms of slavery, but then, okay, we know that that is a, that is a byproduct of this person's humanity. I, okay, I, I can, I think I can roll with that from, for that, from that, from that point, from that point of view. But then, so is it that your hermeneutic is saying that, well, we know that this is wrong due to what we know from other scriptures due from like due to what we know from other passages of scripture and that that speaks about the that speaks about you know the goodness of god it speaks about moral principles that are already set there and then we realize that well this conflicts or this contradicts with what is going on here and so you use that as a hermeneutic to say to then distinguish between to, to, to basically like to basically stamp out what like obviously be honest be honest about the the, the bad things in scripture and the bible be honest about it but in order for you to not get in order for you to not just like it's it almost seems to me that your hermeneutic is sinking to oh my gosh did y'all hear, hear that? I heard that. That was pretty. That was pretty loud. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that was. That was probably a motorcycle. But it seems to me that your hermen your hermeneutic is basically attempting to, like, would you say that your hermeneutic is basically saying, "Look, I'm living with the contradiction there," and then, but but at the same time, I'm placing the goodness that I know of God, which is attested to in Scripture over and above the errors that were that that is placed in that is placed into scripture so is it that okay this is the goodness of god that is attested to in scripture this is conflicting with the goodness of god that is attested to in that that is um attested to in scripture so it can't be so it so it can't be god who did it but it's more so of a human error than god making the error well, I mean, like, here's an interesting example from Jesus himself. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus is debating about divorce, he tells them, you know, it was not God's intention for you to divorce. Moses gave you that law because of the fact that there were people with evil hearts in his day. Mm -hmm. So this is a really important text because of the fact that in the Torah, it gives you no indication that it's Moses himself who gives this law. It says, in fact, that God himself gives Moses this law as just an edict given on heaven. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you end up having uh, Jesus affirm that it was Moses and that it was Moses due to social circumstances in that historical time and place, yeah. which is, again, not specified in the scriptures we have in the Torah. So somebody who is actually there, who is... Um, who somebody who is uh, reading this text and they're hearing Jesus speak would be like, but 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 how could we have known that? Hmm. How how would we be able to have realized that? I mean, it says God said it. How how should we know that it was Moses or that it was due to social circumstance? I mean, we could have guessed it if we wanted to, but but where would have our exegetical basis been for this? And where would our faith have been stamped on this? And 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 Jesus, this is the important part. Jesus condemning them. He's saying you're condemned for the fact that you have allowed this to keep going on and you haven't figured out that this does not match the character of God as revealed through Genesis. Mm. 
as revealed in the Eden story, as re- right? Jesus is telling them it doesn't matter if you don't know these things. The fact is you should have known there was a disparate problem with the character of God and this rule. So you should have recognized why it would have been included here. And this is something that lots of people do. We like to try to make this up for, for talking about polygamy. We like using this in regards to slavery, sometimes too much. We're like, oh, well, you have to know with polygamy that, you know, God's character is not pointing in that direction, even though there's no text that condemn it per se in the way that we want them to, you know. But really, it's we're doing the same thing that Jesus is saying, calling us to do, which is know God's character. And even if a text says God said it, recognize, actually, if it's contrary to God's character, it's a human writing it. And there's a, probably a historical reason why that human felt implied to have to do that. But mm, again, okay. yeah, Jesus get, uh, demonstrates here that if he can condemn them for following scripture specifically, just exegetically following what it says word for word, because they didn't read the spirit of it, that contradicts the exact wording of it, hmm. then there is your principle for why abolitionism succeeded so well, which is they had to do the same thing. They had to look at the text god almighty there's too many of them that support slavery support in there are texts in the old testament that support perpetual slavery for children to be born property Uh, these texts with no ability to get out no provisions provided and these kinds of texts are there they were the reason why the southerners in the united states were uh, pastors were able to be preaching in defense of slavery they made it very clear that if you said no to these texts you were godless atheists otherwise and Mm -hmm. And, and communists and socialists and all those. And, and the thing is, when you look at the abolitionists, they were making a very weak exegetical argument. Well, Paul happened to make this comment once. Jesus's hermeneutic and, and strategy of love seems to point the opposite direction. Can we really imagine God would, right? They, they did not, they had to argue with very unspecific texts that were very broad about God's character and put those into conflict with the texts that were very specific about slavery in mm-hmm. order to get us to this point now today where it is beyond our imagination to even try to imagine that those texts really are as bad as they are, mm-hmm. that slavery is at all possible. And if you're not, and I think it was John MacArthur who was actually, I could be wrong, forgive me if I am, but some famous pastor um, who got in trouble because there's a video of him about slavery and he's defending it. He's defending it on YouTube in this video from a documentary or something. And he's defending it saying, well, yeah, but if it's in the Bible, it must have been okay. There's good slavery. There's good stuff where people can own people. Like there can be a a proper purpose for it because if God employed it, it must be proper. It must be good, right? He's taking a very literalistic approach. If it's in the Bible, it must be because it reflects God. So I can't condemn scripture. Most Christians think God are not in his camp they can look at the Bible and say, yeah, that's not God's character. Mm -hmm. And that's important because that's what Jesus was getting at those Jewish leaders that he was debating with then, is you need to know God's character to evaluate scripture. So yes, Ari, I would say that like you, you did frame it very well in the beginning when you were saying what you were saying about understanding that these texts take priority because of they they relate specifically to God's character, whereas these other texts are relating specifically to different laws or regulations or things that obviously reflect back on God's character. But if they reflect back on God's character in a way opposite of the general trajectory of Scripture about God's character, then it's the general trajectory of God's Scripture that takes precedent over these texts individually who speak against it. Hmm. So... We're we're almost at the two hour mark. So, um, Cody, can you um, 
give a, a a brief a brief response and then we'll we'll head into you know our closing comments yeah um so i mean i would say two things one thing is that when matt talks about a trajectory i think that there are a lot of passages um that he doesn't like um that in the both the old and new testament that point to a trajectory of not just God's mercy, but God's wrath, for example. Um, I think, and, and so I think that it's it's very difficult. I think to say, well, you know, this one is is overpowers that one. I guess in some sense it does. Like Exodus 34 talks about God's uh, justice and His wrath, but also that His mercy is far greater. And I agree with that, but it still acknowledges the existence of the wrath. And I think that's something that we have to come to terms with, and we can't just write it off. Um, in addition, when he talks about all these passages where people say no to God and are proved right. Um, unless I missed it, I think he left out the passage where King Saul is told that he has to kill Agag, the um, uh, Amalekite king, and he refuses to do it, and then there's judgment against Saul for that. And so that's a case where Saul says no. And So what, what Matt seemed to be saying is that when somebody says no, and it's something that God really didn't want them to do, uh, that he rewards them for that. And I think in this case, um, and, and Matt's argument was that that only happens where someone is has a merciful intent or something to that effect. And this is a case where Saul's intent uh, is arguably more merciful than what God's intent is, uh, but Saul is uh, criticized by God for not uh, doing what he was told by God. So, I, I, but my point in both of those statements is to say I think he's I think he thinks this is a little bit neater than it is. I think it's I think it's. I understand where he's going with it, but I think it's it's a lot more complicated. I don't think it really takes into account all of Scripture as it is. So that would be my pushback. Okay. Um, so Matt, can you give your closing com? Can you give your cl closing comments, and then after you're done, Cody, you'll give yours, and then we'll we'll end the we'll end the uh, stream. Yeah. Sure. No, I think. Well, to his first point, I would say you have to deal with the law of non-contradiction. If you're going, the whole point of my hermeneutic is God is a consistent God according to scripture. He's a God who is the same. He's trustworthy. He's all these things, right? So if you are reading a part of scripture that's going to start suggesting that God is the opposite of something that he's proclaimed to be, the answer is not, oh, I'm going to make a silly argument and say, and I'm not saying that Cody's saying this, I'm speaking from personal experience with individuals. Oh, God can be perfectly loving and perfectly hating. I've had so many evangelicals make that argument. God can perfectly hate because he's God. He can do it in a way we can't. Yeah, no, no, this is just becoming a uh, 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 just anti-logic game. Now we're just saying, well, I can say things that don't really mean what they mean, and I can say that they make sense because I'm speaking about God. No, if we're going to talk about God and we're going to establish things, we're going to have to establish them by what they actually mean. If God is describing himself in sense that goes left, then he's left. If he's describing himself in a sense that goes right, then he's right. And you, once you keep seeing the general trajectory going all the way through to Christ, and it's going a certain direction more than another, you're going to have to figure out, okay, well, what part of this is the misunderstanding of people, and what part is the actual trajectory of God's revelation as it keeps unfolding? And yes, you're going to see those different trajectories in Scripture. I'm not arguing there's only one trajectory in Scripture. Sure, if you map out all the byproduct of humanity in Scripture, you're going to find a general trajectory of, of, of filth. Sure, you can find that. You can figure that out. Of course, because there's a lot of them. There's lots of data points to connect. But at the same time, we're going to have to recognize that it's not whether or not there are, are things in Scripture that go against what another thing in Scripture says. It's where that trajectory meets up with Christ and how then that fills into the Christian vision. 
So it, the buck stops in terms of our Christological lens. So you have to marry those two together. And I'm sorry, but you know, like, you're not going to, you're not going to find a consistent trajectory of God's wrath and, and unmercy and other factors. And you're going to say, oh, well, that ends up with Jesus and gets confirmed. That's not going to happen. And even, you know, we're not going to get into it. I have, I don't think that uh, Cody got to that part in the book, but I have a chapter on Revelation and dealing with judgment and stuff. Even when you, people try to employ uh, something from the uh, book of Revelation and say, well, look at Christ here. It's not clear cut. That does not support a trajectory of wrath. There are plenty of passages in there that would shock most evangelicals to realize they've passed over in terms of what it suggests about God's kindness and mercy. And you know, just that's a tease. You can read the book for getting more of my arguments about that. But the point is, is that we have to pay attention that the vision of God we paint is not contradictory. That we're not saying, oh, God is loving and God is also hating. God is turning right at the exact moment he turns left. Uh, God can go this way for a certain direction, and then he seems to go the way of evil, but it's not really evil because God's doing... These arguments undermine the whole premise of each of the stories that I've outlined in my book and dealt with in regards to people successfully fighting with God. If God is not consistent and has a stable trajectory that is unswerving, then their whole point and their, their arguments with God fall apart. Their whole point and the reason for abolition uh, and for other movements that have had to conflict against scriptures, uh, directives, have to be rooted in the belief that God is consistent in one direction. Now, in regards to him pointing out that there are stories in the Bible where people seem to resist God uh, for things like, for instance, uh, Saul and Samuel, yeah, absolutely. In the second book that I'm writing, The Systematic Theology, I have a whole chapter that deals with that issue specifically. And sure, you can look at those things. Although it's not exactly not exactly the most easy thing to, to look at like the Samuel story, because Saul may be doing it for alternative motives. Like, it's not like Saul specifically says, Saul disobeys God's rule in that story not to be merciful. He plans to kill the king. He went ahead and spared the king and some livestock in order, he says, to offer it up as a sacrifice to God at a specific temple place. So the, uh, in his eyes, he's going against the directives of God in order to do something that brings him more privilege and more prominence among the Israelite people as they watch him do this instead of him doing it far away where only the army sees him. So there is other factors here involved, but nonetheless, there are texts in the Bible that specifically say things that go completely contrary to what I'm saying. You've got Genesis 24, I think it is, where you actually have Rebecca's parents, and they go ahead and say, if this thing has come from God, we cannot say it's bad and we cannot say it's good. We can't have any opinion on it because if it's from God, it's outside of any judgment or opinion. And this was just in relation to whether Rebecca was going to become the wife of Isaac. Uh, this is a radical divine command theory model. This is a radical departure from any of the texts we looked at with, with Exodus and stuff. And what do I do when I see that? It's like, well, okay, you've got a text here that says you have no ability to judge God. And you've got texts here that are like, well, yeah, you can judge God based off of things God has done. But guess what in terms of um, how you deal with that logically? Whatever has the exception always wins. If I say there's inerrancy, anything God says is always trustworthy, it's a rule you can test your life on. And then I add an asterisk to it and say, but actually, there are times where that diverges and changes. 
Once I've said that there's a time that diverges and changes, suddenly that asterisk now removes that as a rule. It is no longer a rule of inerrancy. It is a, sometimes inerrancy, but then sometimes there could this be this. And once you've done that, you either have to revise whatever your rule was, or you just have to recognize that it's not a rule to begin with, and it's much, much messier. So in this case, what we recognize by looking at scripture and seeing um, these conflicting visions, and they exist, right? Rebecca, but there's plenty of others as well in the Bible that would support an authoritarian, God says that you better do it or you'll die. Sure, those texts exist, but those texts have to be submissive by logical rule to the texts in the Bible that say the opposite, that say that you can do these judgments, that there is a way to do it. So those texts are the asterisk. They automatically supplant what we see that says otherwise. So to Cody's point, sure, it's messy, but that's not something I'm avoiding at all in my text that I'm talking about. I'm just pointing out that if we're going to use logic and we're going to use a hermeneutic of God's character, then we're going to recognize that when we run into these texts, there is uh, an ebb and flow for understanding through the Christ-like lens what texts can be just taken at face value, what texts will need to be rejected, and what texts should we really genuinely be having substantive conversations about in relation to what God's character is, which, of course, like Moses and others, is constantly unfolding before our eyes throughout our lives, throughout our reading of Scripture. All righty then, and... Cody, you have the floor. I'll, I'll wrap up quickly because I know that we're, we're taking a while. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to say, first of all, uh, thanks, Ari, for inviting me. And yeah. thanks for letting me be here, Matt, and letting me uh, challenge your book and argue with you and all that. Um, I, I want to, I guess, just uh, conclude by saying that I think uh, Matt is arguing against a more fundamentalist view of Scripture than most conservative scholars would have on some level. Um, many conservative scholars would acknowledge, without lowering their view of Scripture, that God is testing Moses, for example, or the Canaanite woman, to bring out a truth. But the truth is recorded in Scripture. Um, scripture doesn't actually mislead us on these points. If all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, uh, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, then we need to take it seriously and believe that it says what it says because God intended uh, it for it to in order to bring the one who diligently searches it to true knowledge about him. Uh, my thesis, again, is that God wants us to take our struggles to him with honesty. He also leaves room op uh, open for us to participate in his plans and purposes through intercessory prayer and right action. However, participation is not usurpation. The consistent message of Scripture is that those who do what is right in their own eyes uh, do what is right in their own eyes, instead of obeying God, are always led astray. In addition, a God who consistently leads us astray is not a good God who can be trusted. So that would be my, my concluding thoughts. Right. And my concluding thoughts and response would be, again, I am not <laughs> claiming that God is consistently untrustworthy. I am not claiming that uh, God is somebody who uh, you cannot uh, trust or understand. But at the same time, think about the position that you are presenting to people in that you're basically making a distinction that if you talk to God in person, he's not as trustworthy as the Bible. That is the position you have just outlined, that scripture doesn't work in such an untrustworthy way, but Jesus himself did, and God in the flesh did, or not God in the flesh, that's Jesus, God in person in time and history with Yahweh uh, as Yahweh through Moses and Jacob. Oh, in those cases, yeah, God could potentially have this asterisk, but not in Scripture. So you've elevated Scripture to an inerrant status that God himself doesn't have. 
I think that's a strange theological position to have. Not that scripture matches God's character, but that scripture is uniquely with it, it, functioning in a way that scripture does not attest to God himself. I, I think that would be a strange position to be in. But I, I suspect we're just going to agree to disagree on this. Well, I, 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 I have a counter, but I don't want to keep us any longer than we need to be. So I'll, you, I'll, I'll you, let you, you uh, get, finish up. Yeah, you, you can get the last, you can get the last word, Cody. And then <laughs> I'll actually, I'll actually end it. I'll actually end it after. Okay. That. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, what I would say is that um, I, I don't think that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but on your view, there's no way to know for sure that when you have uh, applied some kind of a methodology and argued with God that you're going to come to the right conclusion. I mean, you may or you may not. Um, and it seems to me that in Scripture, the conclusion is there. God, I mean, if God inspired Scripture and intended for it to be trustworthy, then we can understand it, not just by taking one little verse out of context, by reading it in its context. And that God left that there as a record uh, that is trustworthy. And I so, don't think it's uncertain. Okay, fair enough. Well, thank I you don't. so much. <laughs> no, I'm just, I mean, if yeah. you're going to say that yeah. this is my view, I have to yeah. clarify. No, I don't think that it's uncertain. This is the point of why I anchored in Christ as the, you know, like if you create a scientific problem, you come up with a hypothesis, and then you have to test that. And then if it doesn't work, you have to go back and figure out what premises were wrong, and then eventually you'll figure out the right premises that lead to the result. Jesus Christ on earth, God incarnate, is our testing mechanism for understanding what it is and who God is. That is the way in which you find certainty in these issues, is by weighing your propositions against the trajectory of Scripture and God's revelation in Jesus. You have to have both features there. Otherwise, yeah, sure, you just have the trajectories in Scripture. You can say, well, which trajectory I want? It's kind of subjective. Well, God gave us an answer. And that's the point of my hermeneutic. You may disagree with it, sure, but no, it does not leave somebody with the idea of, well, I don't, I'm not sure who God is. Alrighty then. All right. Um, thank you guys. This has been a, I think this is the longest podcast I've ever done in my life, but I really, I really do appreciate you guys coming on. Um, I, I actually want to be able to do it in a more, um, not just you guys, but I actually want to next time if I ever do this again, I wanted, wanted to have it a little bit more, um, I guess, structured in a way. So, yeah. yeah so, so we won't be like, so we won't be off in the weeds. So like, that's my fault. That's my fault. We'll, we'll have a, a much more structured conversation, much more structured conversation. So we, you know, we won't be going off in the weeds and things like that. But overall, I enjoy, I enjoyed the discussion. How, how'd you, how'd you guys enjoy it? It was it was interesting. Um, I, I, wa I want to give Matt another opportunity to mention the name of his book, though. Yes, please mention your book and let everybody know where they can get it, where they can purchase it. And also, Matt, will it be on Audible? Eventually, yeah. Okay, eventually. That's but it's it's been taking a while. I was like, that's the only way that I can actually read books now. Books now. So please, please put it on Audible, please. Well, yeah, so the, the book's name is Saying No to God, A Radical Approach to Reading the Bible Faithfully. Um, it's available for sale on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere books are sold. You can get a copy, ebook, otherwise. Um, and, you know, the, the book's purpose, the only interest in this is really to spark conversations, to have people look at scriptures that they have kind of passed over or have relegated to questions of God's foreknowledge, open theism, etc., and see new aspects of them in relationship to morality, ethics, how we read scripture, our hermeneutical lens that we're using. And I'm hopeful that in that respect, uh, this book can spark those kinds of conversations. 
um, and open up uh, new visions of what it means to radically take into account Israel's name, those who fight God. How is that a blessing? How does it affect us? And to look at Jesus and his interactions with people such as the Canaanite woman and think through what elements of scripture is Jesus waiting for us to look at and say, wait a minute, that's not logical. Wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. That's not who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, or are we going to be like the disciples who just swallow it, walk around, and then find out that somebody outside the faith has actually figured it out better than we do? Sometimes I think that gets illustrated in debates between Christians and atheists, where atheists can point out something deeply immoral in Scripture, and the Christian's like, no, I have to defend this because it's God. And in fact, in those cases, it can kind of be somewhat comparable to the Canaanite woman. They are standing there outside the faith looking at something saying, no, that can't possibly be true. And God is saying, yeah, that person is great in faith. That person understands who I am. This person who claims to be my disciple hasn't figured it out yet. Hmm. Alrighty then. Thank you, guys. Thank you guys for coming on. I, I, I enjoy myself. Thank you for inviting me. Arnold. No problem. No problem. This has been, the Feld Kingdoms podcast. We are now logging off. This has been with Cody Cook and Matt Matthew Corpman. Make sure you can make sure you purchase his book if you're interested. His book is on Kindle. I'm pretty sure it's on Barnes and Noble. Probably Books a Million. So make sure you purchase. Make sure you purchase the book. And this has been Ari sign off. Well, thank you, uh, thank you guys for letting me stick in here. I, I, hopefully, by my pushing back a little bit, it gave you an opportunity to uh, express.